Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Feel and Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and welcome to a very, very special episode with me here tonight. Hopefully, hyped up and ready to go is my best friend, my co-host, and of course, the man who can be my wingman anytime, Patrick. Hey, everybody. That was a pretty epic opening. I don't know that we've ever had different kinds of music to open our podcast. So We haven't, but this is special. <laughs> We're going to okay. roll with it. We got to get in the okay. mood. Yeah. Need a I little feel Top the mood, Gun anthem. The mood here. for food. No, that's not right. <laughs> I feel the for... Yeah, good stuff. Well, as you know, everyone, we are going to be chatting about Top Gun Maverick. And if it's not obvious, I am ready. I have been jonesing to talk to Patrick about this ever since I saw it super early at a press screening like three weeks ago. And I still don't know what he thinks. He has mysteriously kept his opinions and reactions a secret from me. So this could go sideways real quick, actually. I have no earthly idea. We're just going to hope for the best and see how it goes and plan but for no. the worst. Is that how it goes? <laughs> well, there, you know, there's a kick button that I have here. And if I need to finish this podcast solo, <laughs> I mean, you got the FF plus kind of uh, as your training I, ground, I guess you could probably, yeah, this is your mission, right? This is FF plus is your true. training ground for going solo. This could be the actual yep. mission. If you choose you to need, accept it, <laughs> you <laughs> need me on that so. plane. Uh, wrong movie, <laughs> but also Tom Cruise. Anyway, yeah. Well, we're going to have a good time, and I want to give a quick warning, listeners, that this episode might be slightly more rambly than some of our episodes are, and just a little bit less structured, because I have not planned this out in a very specific kind of way. I just want to talk about everything, and so we may be bouncing all over the place, back and forth quite a bit, and we are just going to go with it and have fun. So here's your spoiler warning. Hopefully you have seen Top Gun Maverick. Amazingly, it is the biggest box office opening of Tom Cruise's career, which is a shock. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth. But that tells me that many of you have seen it. Thankfully, if you have not, please get the to a theater. See this on IMAX. See it in Dolby. Explurge on the premium format because you're going to get your money's worth. It is a blockbuster like we just don't very often get anymore and worth your time, worth your money. And then come back and listen to this robust discussion about the movie. All right, Patrick, I guess we'll just start up top. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious what I think about this film just from my tone so far. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anybody who's listened to the FF Plus or follows me on social media knows what my reaction to this has been. I've seen it three times already. I'm ready to go back again. I could probably just watch it on repeat if I didn't have responsibilities or a budget. But I need to know what you thought. You are dressed like a volleyball or flag football player on a beach, so I am taking that as a good sign. But seriously, man, no, really, what did you think? I wanted so badly to like this movie because, as you said, I mean, this is what, three years in the making and delay after delay after delay after delay. And like the Flash movie that is, again, delayed, I told myself, I'm not going to believe this movie exists until I sit in a seat <laughs> and I see the credits roll. And I don't care that you had already seen it twice. I think 
you know, I thought at that point, it's really just a theory, you know, a conspiracy theory. This is really just, it's fake. <laughs> it's fake news is what it is. And so I was just as amped to see it. I mean, you and I, we had our great discussion on Top Gun a few years ago. Both of us were kind of sad that we covered it when we did, because this would have been a great time to revisit it. In fact, I even thought, but I never shared with you that I thought, why don't we just do it again? I mean, why not? Just <laughs> retcon some of these episodes, <laughs> right? But, you know, that's kind of podcast faux pas, so we won't do that. And I, I went in going, man, I, I want this. I didn't like it. I loved it. It was fantastic. And it was just like everything I wanted it to be and and more. There was so much that I remember just experiencing nostalgia, experiencing a freshness, experiencing, wow, not even just four minutes in. And I'm like, this, this is going to be good. And from the moment that the Top Gun theme drops and we get that familiar opening sequence with the credits, the font, I mean, everything is just like, am I going back to 1986? Because I feel like I am. But no, we see FA-18s. We see updated tech. We see all this stuff that you are familiar with, but you know you're getting something new. And that was kind of how I felt the whole way through is this sense of familiarity, but not so much nostalgia that it just cheapened the story. This story felt very appropriate. It felt very fresh. It felt very exciting. And aside from maybe a couple of small sequences that kind of felt a little more action adventure uh, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> for the most part, this movie was was five stars for me. It was a it's a theater movie. I am one of these people that because like most people, I'm on a budget. I I don't put a lot of because I don't go see a ton of movies. I know we cover a lot, but we, we haven't covered as many theater picks as we have in the past, and a lot of the stuff is streaming, and so we opt to do some things that are on the streaming services. I know we we talked about uh, Marry Me. We watched that at home, which is fine. So it's it's very rare that I feel like I need to be in a theater for this. Mostly because even with my Regal account, I have usually taken my wife and I've loved that. We actually have gone to see several movies together this year, which has been fantastic because we don't have a ton in common in terms of what we like. But this was one that she was definitely excited about we're also, we already have our tickets ordered for Dominion, which she's excited about as well. And I put this in that category in terms of being a movie that needs to be seen on the big screen. Now, for the most part, I'm a guy who I'll look for the standard tickets, particularly if I'm seeing it on my, on my own. It's a Friday night gig or a Friday afternoon gig. I'm going to go to a theater, see a standard 2D, whatever. And, and that's what we did. We got our tickets, sat in the middle, and it was a great experience. So let me just tell you this. My wife, when we woke up this morning, we slept in a little bit, Memorial Day weekend. My son was spending the night with a friend. We were just kind of hanging out, getting ready to start the day. And she told me, man, I want to go see that again. I said, I kind of yes. do too. Yes. And so we actually watched the the first one, or she watched, started watching the first one this morning. Um, and you know, I, I sat down and watched a little bit of it with her. We had um, plans for dinner with some friends of ours that we don't get to hang out with a ton, but tonight we got a chance to just spend like almost eight hours just hanging out. They have a pool. We did that at tacos and things like that. And we were just telling them how much it was a, a great movie. They're big 
fans of the eighties. They grew up kind of the same era that we did and they picked up tickets. They were like, yeah, I think we're going to do this. We've got time. And they said, you guys want to go? And we're like, yeah, let's do it. So we're going to an RPX feature tomorrow yes. at about four o'clock. And we intentionally planned our like double date with them to have an early showing because we wanted to have dinner afterwards because we know that the conversation is going to be just full, <laughs> not only with other stuff, you know, catching up with them and other things that, you know, we all have in common, but Top Gun's going to be in the mix of that. And so, you know, I left the theater just really feeling like these are movies, Top Gun, Dominion. I don't get these a lot. We don't get these big, like they need a big screen. They need great sound. They need to be able to be experienced in the theater. And we've talked about that before, Not, but this really raises a great conversation piece about is every movie needed to be released in the theater? And I think that's kind of the world we're living in and studios are kind of realizing, you know what? Let's go ahead and release this simultaneously on a streaming service because the fact is it doesn't need the big screen and maybe it doesn't feel appropriate. This is a movie that does. And there were so many wow moments where I was like, <laughs> they could not top that. And they do. Oh, they can't top that. And they did. And by the time we get to the third act, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to shut up now in my head because they're probably just going to continue to top what they're doing. It and is called Top Gun after all. It is called Top Gun. And I, I think in general, I'm with the majority of people who wanted this to be really good, wanted this to be because it was so delayed, because this is a dad movie, because a lot of what made the success of Top Gun was not about just its, I mean, it was had a lot of technical accuracy, but um, it was just one of those big blockbuster movies that people think about and they're like, yes, that's really good. Or that's amazing. My dad, I think I mentioned this on the other episode that I think he went to go see this nine times in the theater or seven times. And it was therapeutic for him. He'd had a rough day at the office and he'd call my mom and say, Hey, I'm going to go see Top Gun. Stayed in the theater for, I think, nine months. And at the time, that's unprecedented. I mean, this is, you know, when movies don't get released to videotape or DVD or whatever ancient media <laughs> you are familiar with until months and months and months and months and months later. Um, and so for him, it was a huge thing to be able to go that many times and just to feel the wave of, of, of therapeutic emotion. And Top Gun Maverick does that again in a way that is very much right with the franchise and also new. It doesn't feel like a retread. There is some formulaic stuff going on, but it works in the favor of the storytelling. Um, even down to just a few lines, we'll get into all this stuff. But in general, my whole reaction to it was like, not just, I want to go see it again, but I want to experience it in the theater again. Like this is one that obviously we're going to own. We'll put it in our voodoo library. It's obviously it's a, it's a trophy room. I movie already pre-ordered it. Just FYI. Yeah. So <laughs> already bought the so, so it's going to, so. yeah. So it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be part of the, the pantheon of our, our love for the, for this uh, franchise. But I think more than anything, this is one of those movies that raises the conversation. Theaters matter. Movie theaters absolutely matter. Hearing people react the way they did in the theater. Same thing with Spider-Man. These are the movies that you need to experience in a theater with people. Dark, surrounding screen, big sound, everything. Otherwise, it cheapens it. And where I have love for Christopher Nolan, who thinks that every movie he makes should be in the theater. <laughs> Maybe so. 
I think when you look at Tom Cruise as an actor and someone is really an ambassador for good filmmaking, the way he puts his stamp of approval in terms of how he performs and everything behind the scenes, you can tell that the love of the character, the love of the story, the love of that world is on full display here. So full stop, loved it. Here you go. Giving it back to you. Oh no, no, I could listen to you all day. I'm stoked. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just so freaking happy. I mean, I, I, you know, I had my expectations that this is going to be your reaction once I saw it the first time and couldn't stop thinking about it. And then seeing it the second time in 40X, which was my first ever experience in that format. And it was with my son and, it, and he loved the movie and it was just a completely incredible memory that we got to make together. Me with my nostalgia, him coming really to it for the first time, but falling in love with it and us both seeing it in this weird way where water was misting on our faces during the sailboat scene and we had our seats flying with the jets and missiles were popping off in the third act and these strobe lights were flashing in the sides of the theater walls up in the ceilings i mean it was intense and it was so cool and then my third viewing i get to watch with my roommate and see it for his first time it's kind of a thing now where patrick i just want to take everybody i know that hasn't seen it yet so i can sit there and watch them because I know what's coming. And so for all of these references we're going to talk about, it's so much fun to just turn to someone, you know, like this is one I so wish we could have seen together because we would just be doing that. We would just be turning our heads and looking at each other and grinning just constantly all the time being like, oh my gosh, they did that. And oh my gosh, that's Penny Benjamin. And oh my gosh, you know, just these fun little details that are beautifully not in your face in this movie, which will, Again, I want to go into that specifically. A couple quick things, though. What you were saying about it being a theater movie, boy, I could not agree more on that everything doesn't need to be. And I wonder if this is going to help trigger some of that understanding that budgets are not going to win the day for you necessarily anymore. There's a certain formula and type of movie that audiences are going to pay for. This is... Projected now at $151 million for a four-day. One of the all-time great, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Memorial Day weekend openings, Tom Cruise's best opening ever. It's got a $248 million worldwide opening. I mean, this thing is beloved by everyone. It's got an A-plus cinema score, which is very rare. I think only 91-ish, 92 movies in 40 years have achieved the A-plus from audiences. So it's clearly not just us. And there's something that audiences are seeing in this that other legacy sequels have just not been able to achieve. And a big part of that is obviously Tom Cruise and his passion, not just him as an actor, not just him as a box office draw, because like I said, it's the best of his career, but him as the person who, like you said, he fought for this specifically during the pandemic. Paramount was having a battle with Cruz and luckily he was a producer on this movie and he was like no I'm not going to let it be sullied by sending it straight to streaming we will wait this out because people need to see this on the big screen they deserve it I don't know if you got did you get the announcement from Cruz before your movie did they play a little I did yeah absolutely thing. you could I've seen that before. Uh, we saw it during the Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman and and the director. Yep, that's there. right. And, and those things, those things are, those things are 
impactful because you don't see them a lot. And I'm glad we don't see them a lot because then they can come across as pretty campy. But I really believe with the backstory that we have about Tom Cruise and how he fought for this, watching him, this is the first time I felt like he was really talking to us. Like he was genuinely, and I say this because he looks old. He looks like he hasn't been cryogenically frozen as we see in all these other movies. I mean, he's in great shape. That's one thing that I think is really unheard of for an action star to be as seasoned as he is and still be in the shape that he is. I mean, I can probably attribute that to Scientology. I'm not going to get into any of that. But the fact is, he is in that tr- in that message, you could see that he genuinely is grateful. Thank you for coming to the theater. Thank you for experiencing this and waiting for this. I mean, you can't say that about a lot of other films in particular because you don't know about these actors that really are putting in the blood, sweat, and tears. And I think we got a similar reaction from The Greatest Showman because this is something that in that regard was, you know, they weren't looking at this as being something like, thanks for taking a risk on a musical because this is not something that we see a lot. So there's something personal about recognizing, I don't want to call it a sacrifice, but really the reality of being a fan, the reality of being a spectator, putting your money in and saying, man, I hope this isn't a dud especially in a world where we have theaters and we have movie houses that are sort of question marks for a lot of people. They're like, do I really want to go? I could just stay home and not have to worry about crowds. And that's a real, that's a real thing. I mean, the fact is who wants to sit? I've gotten so used to watching movies at home or watching movies in a blank, you know, a blank theater, an an uncrowded theater in the middle of the afternoon that when I have to sit next to somebody, it feels kind of awkward because we've been living under rocks for two and a half years with COVID And so when you have a a message like that, it tends to bring out this, you know what, this is a communal experience and we need to get over our (laughs) introversion because I think a lot of us have become introverts, even those that were already like me. The fact is a message like that tells us that we're valuable. And and, and I think it was really sincere. I think it was really genuine for him to say that. And, uh, And I loved it. It was a great kind of lead into the actual movie because I'm like, okay, cool. Me and Tom, we're going to have lunch and we're going to talk about this afterwards. And he's going to thank me again. And I'm going to be grateful for him thanking me. And we're going to just have a thankful fest. So (laughs) (laughs) it's, it was cool. I liked it. It is. And he also, I mean, he wasn't going to make this movie unless it was done the way he wanted it to be done. He brought on people he trusted who he's worked with before. That's one of Cruz's biggest qualities. I think that is kind of unspoken about, often, which is his loyalty. I mean, he's worked with Kaczynski previously. He really wanted Kilmer to be in this. He was adamant that they were going to find a way to get Val in this movie. And I mean, of course, how it's executed is just brilliant. But he believed in doing this right. He actually was requiring the different cast members to go up and experience taking levels of like five or six G's or whatever pre-casting calls in fighter jets. And I was reading that they went through quite a big list of casts where they weren't in the movie. They had to find other people. There's a big part of the reason that these are not a lot of well-known actors. A lot of actors who were originally sought at out for this film said, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it, not going to go up and actually be in the jet and film myself. Patrick, I don't know if you knew this, because I've already been consuming, I've had time, of course, to read and watch everything that I possibly can. 
So I've been looking at like videos that show how they got 800 plus hours of camera footage up in the F-A-18s and like the eight or nine different camera placements. So the way it worked is they would go up for a take and the actors would have to flip the cameras on when it was time for them to say lines and record themselves, right, by themselves. Then they would have to come down, land, then Kaczynski could review footage and figure out if it was a good take or not. Can you even imagine? I mean, this is so different than doing it on a stage, right? Where you're just like, nah, I didn't like that take. <laughs> Let's do another one. Another one includes burning jet fuel, paying for that, and flying back up into the air to do it again. It's crazy. And it's, it makes the performances and the, the end result even that much more incredible to me that they were able to achieve it. But they believed in this. And, you know, the Navy believed in them enough to provide the jets and provide the access again. And it was all about like this practical thing. That's one. Of, there's no CGI in this movie. It's all practical, which is uh, I mean, maybe there's like some missile explosion CGI. Probably. I don't think Tom actually took a missile to the, the plane or whatever. But you know what? Maybe he did. <laughs> he may have. I actually also read that. He was explicitly not allowed to touch the controls, which I found hilarious because the all the actors weren't, but they were absolutely had to be very specific about Tom and be like, no, you cannot actually fly the jet like you are. There was always someone in it. So now the third time I watched it, I was really looking close and I can't wait to do this at home and like go frame by frame and see if there's ever a moment where I can like see somebody in a backseat. You know, like an actual so, pilot, like even just an arm yeah. or something. So that's really interesting because that's a question I have going into my second watch is, and this has to do with the plot. You have four planes, two of which only have one pilot or one seat. Yeah. Or, or do all yeah. F-18s have two seats? They only had one person in it. That's what I was trying to understand because both both Maverick and Rooster were solo but their but their wingmen or their their other the other two, uh, I think what did it call it dagger three and four, they were they were paired up. You had the pilot and his reel in in those other two planes. So do some F eighteens only have one? Because Great even question. even even Hangman was solo in his plane, and yep. that's what I was kind of wondering is do they? I mean, I don't, I don't know. That's a I guess that's more of an aviator question. Is was that by design or is that something for the movie? Because by the end of the, by that third act, I was like, well, wait, if he's his wingman, then who is Rooster's real and who is Maverick's real? And at some point is Maverick and Rooster going to be together? And of course they are with the, with the old school Tomcat. But yeah, so that's your answer me. because Google okay. is quick. So the FA-18A and C are single seat aircraft. The FA-18B okay. and D are two seat aircraft. Gotcha. And the B, which is a two-seater, is primarily used for training, and the 18 and the C and the D are primarily used for attack, tactical air control, and forward air control and reconnaissance missions. So essentially, gotcha. they have different variations to serve different functions and to be you know, able to do different things. I, I think the key here for the plot is you need the two-seater because someone's got to operate the laser. That's the only reason you have a two-seater coming in behind the single is because the single you can't operate a laser and then go to the bombs or go to the missile drop all of that 
and one was going to be too many actions, I think, to take. And that's at least that's the way I see it. So, yeah, it looks like that would be the reason. But I'm pretty sure all of the ones we saw were two seaters because someone was always flying them. That's the thing. Yeah. And when you think about that, you never actually think about it. Like you never had Phoenix and Bob actually flying in a plane by themselves together. Right. But it is incredibly hard not to to see that. And you, when you watch the way the movie is cut and edited, it's phenomenal because you would you wouldn't know that. I look at it and I think knowing that none of these actors actually flew the plane to me that's amazing editing and that's precise camera work. I mean, let's 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 throw out and disregard for the time being the amazing practical effects of the mission. Let's think about the fact that these close-up shots, which were incredibly immersive, particularly one that stands out to me, is when Maverick does the mission by himself to prove that it can be done, the way he goes hard left and hard right, and just back the and leaning. forth, back and forth. Yeah. I mean, if he's not flying the plane, I don't believe it. I mean, I, I think know. he is flying the plane. <laughs> and and I'm like, this doesn't this doesn't jive with my brain because I'm thinking there's a I was gonna send this to you the night or two before we went to go see this. I think it was on like after Wednesday night, Krisha found a clip of James Corbin and Tom Cruise doing oh, like yeah, a 15 I've seen minute it. bit. So I have <laughs> yeah. a so my question is, does does Tom Cruise know how to fly a plane? Or was that the same kind of thing? Was because they look like they were in the same plane. I mean, and I don't oh, know. He knows. So if you're telling so me that 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 plane at the end, that's his plane. The yeah, the propeller plane that the prop, he flies yeah. off. Like that's him. That's actually him flying in his plane. He owns that. Okay. So yeah, oh, he other, knows how to fly. But the one <laughs> that they fly the next day, and this is not in the movie. The the one that he Corbin that he takes Corbin up in the next the mm. next day. Oh, in the video. A, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to jump back and forth, but I it, it just kind of made me curious. Does he have his pilot's license? Can he actually fly a plane? I mean, apparently he can, but you're, you know, when you tell me he's not allowed to touch the controls, obviously we're talking about military aircraft. We're talking about Correct. things that you do not touch because you don't know. But the fact that he's in the aircraft, it's not like him on a soundstage making these faces. No, he is feeling the Gs. He is feeling... And these these characters, these actors, have to feel that as well because that's what I think sells it more than anything. And watching the original Top Gun, this is still prevalent. It's not as clean it's more rough and rugged and it's lit a little differently but the reactions from these actors have to be genuine they can't sell me that they are breathing heavy they can't sell me that they're blacking out i mean yeah you can but the fact is i mean the amount of push on their chest i believe that they are feeling what they're feeling because you cannot sell me that as an actor otherwise it would come across as hokey and i think that just like in any kind of profession that requires you to press your muscles, you know, flex your mental muscles, flex your your physical muscles. This is one of those first few movies in a while where I feel like, okay, there are no stuntmen here. The actor has to be the stuntman. And I think that takes a page out of Tom Cruise's book because in actuality, he does a lot of his own stunts. I mean, he is a guy, I think this is why he stays fit is because he pushes himself. He tells himself that, look, if I'm going to be an action star, I don't want somebody else to have to take that burden and honestly, that credibility. I mean, I don't know Tom Cruise or anybody else, but I think if I'm going to be an action star, I'm going to do as much as I can. 
and screw the union, screw the safety. <laughs> he's going to be, a, he's going to be Maverick essentially. And so watching him perform and watching these other actors perform it, it really is somewhat meta because he's setting the example as an actor. And I think that's what makes him so appealing, particularly in this role. But, you know, we saw the trailer for the upcoming Mission Impossible I was going to ask movie, that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, you know, if he can't, and of course he's doing the same thing that I look forward to every time I watch him is, is he going to do the Tom, is he going to do the Tom Cruise run? Yes, he does. The run. He does it. I love, he does I it love Maverick. how it ends. Does it's it? so perfect. <laughs> oh, look, Tom Cruise is running. For it. Yeah, he's running again. Runs right into but, a brick uh, wall called Bradley Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> such a great but, moment uh, it is it really is because you're so and expecting this incredible embrace and he's just like shoves him to, and, and miles <laughs> teller miles teller with the you told me not to think and then he just throws his arms up and shakes his head the look on his face like of complete incredulous like what yeah and mav's just like no comeback right it's just i don't yep. know but anyway anyway you're right though that run everybody's waiting for that run now yeah so just watching him and watching how the actors respond to him. I, I want to believe that the actors are responding to him. Like I see the characters responding to Maverick because I think they believe him as an actor. They believe that he is their commander. He's their, their, their lead on this and they're taking their cues from him. So I'd like to believe that miles Teller and company grew up a little bit in this movie. They grew up I as would, actors. They were like, yeah. look, we were pushed and we're better for it. We're better actors for this. So I hope to see more of a lot of these uh, these actors. I mean, obviously, Miles Teller's been in a lot of things already, and it makes me want to revisit some of his older stuff. Uh, I also think it's really funny that Miles Teller gets to, uh, I keep saying this full name, <laughs> Miles, Mr. Teller, whatever. I think it's funny that he gets to play another instrument in this movie. You know, he had the drums and whiplash, and now he gets to play the piano. He's just not getting beaten down by anybody <laughs> as he's Good playing point. the... Yeah, so... Hopefully he'll just continue that run. Like, you know, Christopher Walken dances in all of his. Yeah, Teller's going to be think, playing an instrument of some kind. I was thinking back at other movies I've seen him in, like Kaczynski's Only the Brave, which I definitely think you and Krisha will both love when you watch that one. And it's at home. I think it's on Paramount Plus, by the way. Okay. So you guys can fire that one up on a weekend night. Yeah. But you'll love, you will love it. It's Jennifer Connelly, too. Jennifer Connelly is married to Josh Brolin in that one. Great relationship. And then yeah. Miles Teller is the one of the leads with, our man Taylor Kitsch as another uh, co-lead or co big supporting character, not co-lead. Uh, anyway, yeah, he, I don't think he plays any instruments. Anywho, back to Tom Cruise. So, yes, he is very much playing out something that is meta, in my opinion, as well, in this film. And I loved it. I thought that it was the most incredible way to take this story somewhere that was meaningful because it felt at every turn realistic to me for these characters. Now, when I say realistic, and I'm going to use that word probably multiple times during this podcast, I'm going to clear this up right now. The Navy has even come out and said specifically, listen, this is not naval aviation. <laughs> this is not how actual aviators act and how actual aviators would behave in in a training room or in any sort of combat team based mission scenario. These are exaggerated personalities for Hollywood movies. These are the way that we as every man want to believe our heroes act in a lot of ways. We, we want them to have some faults. We want them to be brash and over the top and crazy and completely just 
nutso to the point where they would steal an F-A-18 to make their point, right, and get away with it. But the Navy has said very clearly this is not how it actually is. So don't think that this is a one-for-one portrayal of what naval aviators act like. Now, do they have an edge? I've known quite a few, and yes, absolutely they do. Do they have a cockiness to them? You betcha. (laughs) And they've earned that. And that stuff comes through just fine. But what I think is, when we look at where Maverick leaves off in his story at the end of Top Gun, and what we would naturally expect from his career at that point, to be introduced to him in this movie, and pretty quickly kind of get the rundown and learn that we, or we get the explanation, especially there at the beginning from Admiral Kane about why he's a captain, which was the big question everybody had when we saw the trailer. And it's all about the fact that <laughs> I love the, I love the line, the way he says it, you know, and he's like, he's like, you won't promote, you won't, uh, what is it? He's like, um, you won't quit or something. And, it, and, and against your best efforts, you won't die. And <laughs> it's just, it's like, a, what's going on here? Um, but Maverick believes he needs to be in a plane. And the thing is, you promote yourself out of the ability to any longer be an actual aviator. That yeah. makes sense. It checks out, right? And yeah. so I love that he's wrestling this whole movie with the idea of two th- two sentences that, Admiral Kane says to him in that initial meeting, he says, the future is coming and you're not in it at the beginning of their little interaction. And at the end, when Maverick's leaving after he's heading to Top Gun, he says, the end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. And the whole movie is about that. It's about Pete Mitchell wanting to do this thing. Like he says to Ice, it's not, I'm not, or what did he say? Uh, a pilot is not what I am. It's who I am. It's his identity. And it's him trying to accept that he can no longer do this thing that he does. That he has to reinvent himself. He has to move on. He has to be something different. And I think in a lot of ways, that does kind of echo Tom Cruise in his career because he has been sort of like Maverick almost in his own trajectory where he you know he's gone through the different eras of movie making where he's done his magnolias and art house type stuff with pta he's done eyes wide shut with kubrick he's worked with all these big time directors but somewhere in the mid 2000s it was like he decided to reinvent himself and go blockbustery and he decided to reinvent or, or reignite i should say the mission impossible franchise and lean into that where he'd been real resistant to franchises before that. And I think he created this persona that's almost like Maverick and he's 60, man. He's almost 60. Like, I think he knows, you know, mission possible. What is there? Two more movies. They're filming them back to back. Like this is, there's a, there's a clock it's ticking. And I think this is him in a movie acknowledging that not just for the character of maverick which it perfectly makes sense for but for himself in some ways yeah so this is one of the things that i pulled and what i I felt leaving this uh this viewing was that that meta approach that tom cruise is to maverick is equivocable is that the right word (laughs) if i said it right to stallone and the character of rocky and I believe Perfect. that 
I think Rocky Balboa, not the character, yes, the character, but also the movie was his swan song. It was his way of saying, I want the character as a main character. Obviously, we got Creed and Creed 2 and hopefully Creed 3 coming. But he was the centerpiece and his story came to an end in Rocky Balboa and it came to a fitting end, one that I thought was amazing, one that I thought, okay, this is quite metaphorically how you land the plane of your character. And I think you're right. I think when you look at Tom Cruise's career, let's look at the characters. Ethan Hunt, Chief John Anderton, Jack from Oblivion, Cage from Edge of Tomorrow, Brian Flanagan from Cocktail, Charlie, uh, I can't remember the character's name from um, The Color of Money. These are eccentric, maverick-like characters. These are, I, I can do this by myself. I'm good. I don't need to pull any punches. I don't need to do any of that stuff. I'm going to be who I am, and nobody's going to be able to take that away from me. And I think you're right. Along the way, if he looked back at his career in those 2000s, he said, look, what, who was I? And it's a, like, a lot like being a writer. Writers write what they know. And I think actors act who they are. So when you look at him as an actor, as an action star, I think what makes him one of the biggest, if not the biggest action star, is that he knows who he is. He knows what his strengths are. He knows that he can do the Jerry Maguires. But even in that, he is a maverick. Like he, His whole character is, I'm leaving this whole industry. And I'm doing my own thing. Is that a maverick move? Absolutely it is. It's a stupid one at the time. But the same thing, you know, a few good men. Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, and this is as close as you get to maverick in terms of obviously being military, but the way in which he engages in his cross-examination is one of those things where it's just you see that character. You see Maverick living in all these other movies in all these other movies and then you come to realize maybe it's not Maverick living in all these other movies maybe it's Tom Cruise being himself in all these movies and i think that's what makes him great and it's not like he can't do the magnolias or the eyes wide shut or even the minority reports the the quiet movies the jerry maguires far and away far and aways yeah but i think that and that gives him some diversity, but he's not a diverse actor in the way that someone like Gene Hackman is to me. You know, I look at him and I think he can do a lot of different things. He can be eccentric. He can be quiet. He can be these things. Yes, Tom Cruise can do that, but he's got a strength. And I think Maverick as a character recognizes that. I'm a pilot. I'm not a teacher. And he has to be forced into that. And that joke that runs throughout the whole movie of him thinking that he's accepting an invitation when they're orders. No, he's being told. It's a great (laughs) line. Even from the trailer. I I just, I was waiting for that to to laugh because they're called. Thank you for asking me here. They're called orders. (laughs) (laughs) So watching him go through this, I really feel like this is a, a piece of uh, film that allows him to sort of exercise those demons to say, okay, this is what, I want to leave as my legacy for this character. My wife asked me, do you think there'll be a third one? And I say, I hope not. If there is, if there is, which I hope there's not, the appropriate reaction, the appropriate moving forward is going to be Rooster and that crew, that young set of aviators. But again, it doesn't make sense because Top Gun was always about Maverick. He was the centerpiece of both of these movies. 
just like Balboa, Rocky was the centerpiece of all the Rocky movies. So when it moves over to Creed, you have to be really careful. <laughs> you don't make Rocky Seven. And I put, mean, yeah, you don't do <laughs> That's that. That's what I was gonna say. You have to be. <laughs> and I don't see him being a teacher because the fact is he's not. He's not a teacher. He just did it though. That's the thing is he did his teacher. He did it here, right? He almost did. He his did Creed as, in this movie. He did, but he did it reluctantly, and he didn't do it as a teacher. He did it as an aviator because they never expected him to actually fly the thing. I mean, they said at the beginning, he's like, yeah, when do you want me to go? And he's like, you're not going. This isn't for you. You're training the people. The reaction that he had, and particularly seeing Rooster's face, was devastating because the truth is, yeah, the end is inevitable. He can't fly forever, and Tom Cruise can't act forever. And so I think for him as an actor, this represents a way to say, look, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to go out and I think he's going to continue to act, but he's going to, I think he's going to go back into that art style centerpiece. I think he, I think after Mission Impossible, he's going to be done with his action roles and he's going to go back knowing that he can do the eyes wide shuts and he's going to find more of those things and he's going to live a quiet life being an actor that had a successful career. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind that. And I think that would be great a way for him to you know round out the last 20 or so years of acting from his 60 to 80s or 65 to 80 or whatever it is i think he has been on a mission right and this is almost like again with the meta-ness of it's like maverick and tom cruise are both saying we are the only one that can complete the mission i'm the only guy that can bring the blockbuster back the adult blockbuster the family adult blockbuster movie that isn't a comic book film that isn't formulaic or overly nostalgic to the point of not actually having a, a story that matters in the here and now because it's so focused on just selling you the certain hit of nostalgia without an actual reason to exist and i think he's saying that and i think it comes out in the line that they say in the movie over and over and over it's probably my favorite line is it's not the plane it's the pilot and they go through this back and forth. There's some great moments, especially when Maverick gets it thrown back in his face. After he, you know, he comes out with it the first time. It's one of those things where he's trying to be really soft. He doesn't want to say his true feelings at the moment because he doesn't want to hurt Rooster's feelings. And then, you know, Rooster's like, it's not the plane, it's the pilot. And he's like, exactly. And then he realizes, oh, crap, <laughs> my bad. Uh, I didn't mean to say that out loud. But that is, to me, another Tom Cruise thing, right? It's not the plane. It's not the property, the IP. It's the pilot. It's the passion, the drive, the commitment, and the desire to do it, not just to make the quickest way for that IP to be replicable and to make money and to sell toys, but to make a movie and tell a story and impact people emotionally. I cried so many times. Not bawling cried, but I was teary in this movie a bagazillion moments. Like, moments from the story, moments from the nostalgia, moments just because of the daggum soundtrack firing up, and, you know, being Danger Zone or the Top Gun anthem in the background. And Cruz gets this in a way that just nobody else does. Nobody else quite understands it. And I don't, think that that's necessarily a knock on other people i think Cruz just wants other people to look at it and see movie making differently 
And, you know, whether that sticks, whether this, that's not how Hollywood works, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think, you know, I think it's much more likely people are going to see this as a successful financial venture and go, hmm, how do we replicate it because it made money versus right. how do we bring audiences something that they're going to connect that deeply with and actually love? Nobody yeah. cares about making a classic. They care about making a buck. If it's a classic, it's like an extra bonus. Right. And Tom I Cruise think when is the you opposite. Look, well, I, you're right. And I think that the danger of that is that Hollywood's going to look for the next Tom Cruise, not the next action star, but the next guy who's going to appeal to an audience on a personal level, who's going to be the believable face at the beginning of a movie that says, thanks for coming back to the theaters. We know it's been a tough three years. And the fact is, you're not going to, re just like you can't re replicate what we experienced, you're not going to be able to replicate that kind of sincerity because it doesn't exist. I say that it, it exists, but if you do it too much, it's going to lose its luster. And then you're going to think you're being sold a bill of goods at that point. So it is a, it's a valid question. If I'm a movie studio like Paramount or like Disney or Marvel Studios, what do I, what do I do? And so the, the, I guess the ethical question, or maybe the, the people's question is more along the lines of what kind of movies can we put out there that are going to make people happy as opposed to what kind of movies are we going to put out there that are going to make people spend all their money over and over and over again. And this definitely goes back to the IP versus the independent film. You don't have to make all your money in the theater. The fact is, we've discussed for the last couple of weeks, the last Starfighter that was sort of a commercial dud, but it made a whole bunch back in home video release. Does that mean it's successful? It's successful to the people that love it, and the people that don't, don't really care about it. But the fact is, it's spawned documentaries. It's in its own right, in its own world, has developed itself into something that is meaningful to a point of having people invest in those types of things like documentaries and interviews with the cast and potential sequels, legacy sequels or, or whatever. And so when you look at Top Gun, I think what it has is not only all those things, but at the very core, it's a good movie. <laughs> That's the thing is we can take something like the MCU and we can say it can do no wrong. And so you have the haters out there who are like, I'm just waiting for a bad Marvel movie. Well, you're probably not going to get it. Why? Because it's developed a loyalty that <laughs> if you don't like it, like I have a friend of mine who loves Marvel and he's like, I didn't really like the multiverse of madness, but he's not going to say he hated it. He's not going to say it was terrible. Why? Because there's enough forgiveness in the amount of content that Marvel has put out that they can do no wrong. And maybe that's the key. Maybe it's a studio or a company developing a trust with their audience to say, look, we want to give you the best. Forgive us if we don't hit all the right notes every time, but we want to give you the right content. So it almost becomes like a political campaign, which I don't like to say that either because that could be full of lies and deception. But at the very least, fans just want to watch movies and they want to experience that emotional connection with them. If we can find movies that do that, let's not cheapen it by trying to throw in a bunch of nostalgia or by just slapping a Marvel logo on it and saying, here's your next, you know, cash cow. <laughs> and I think that's what Top Gun Maverick is able to do is it says, look, it's not trying to be Top Gun. It's trying to tell a story that it's a logical continuance of Maverick's story that makes sense. And it's not trying to be a cash grab. 
if it were, it would release quickly and as fast as it could and in the widest distribution it could. It wouldn't have waited three years. So in that regard, kudos to Paramount, kudos to Tom, kudos to everybody on that team that said we're it's worth waiting for because it's good. Agree so much. I you know I want to get into the movie now that we've been talking for like forty five minutes, uh, but <laughs> the actual story here. But before that, because I want to just you know drag this out even more, you said something I am curious about. Do you think that that person exists that you were referring to earlier? That next Tom Cruise. So in my opinion, Cruise is the greatest movie star of my generation. The last 40 years of my lifetime, he is the apex of what I think of a movie star. I'm not saying he is the best actor. He is not by any stretch of the imagination. He is not Daniel Day-Lewis. There are things that those great dramatic theatrical actors can do that I don't think Tom can achieve. But I think the persona and what he has brought to movie making and the vast array of types of films that he has been able to make and be incredible in makes him that once in a generation tippy top of that iceberg. So is there someone working now who can take up that mantle? Cause I think Tom is kind of maybe in the vein of like, it's, um, it's kind of funny because the color of money is such a great example and also an all time favorite for me now that I've seen it finally. But if that's kind of what happened is it's like Paul Newman almost like handed this baton to Tom in a lot of ways. Cause that way they were very similar arcs. Is that person out there? Do you think that we have that or who's the closest in your opinion? I don't know. I, I'm, I want to be optimistic and say there is, but I can't put my finger on it. I mean, Hugh Jackman might be just because he's been all over the place, but he's more of a, I mean, he's not a he's not a movie star. He's a well-known actor. And I think that's what we what we differentiate when you talk about Daniel Day-Lewis. He's an incredible actor, a wide-range actor. Christopher Walken, wide-range actor. When we talk about movie stars, typically we equate them with big blockbuster action movies. You know, you could put Nick Cage in that same regard, but Nick Cage isn't going to be the one that's going to potentially like champion a movie. He's not going to be that guy in the front of the screen that says, look, I want this to happen. I mean, as we sort of saw in that meta narrative from, you know, a few weeks ago with his, uh, you know, self self-titled movie, uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Is that a biography? No, it's not, but I think it speaks to the kind of actor he is. I mean, you've got to eat and you've got to make a name for yourself. Tom Cruise is one of those guys who, has threaded himself in so not a prolific amount of movies, but in movies that have been successful. And there are actors out there that have been, they grind it. They work and work and work. John Turturro is a great example of an actor, by the way, he's also in The Color of Money. And he's in a ton of stuff. And he's one of my favorite actors. But I don't think of him when I think of movie star. I think of him as actor. And so in terms of someone who champions the film industry, not just the money-making, not just, wow, it needs to be big and bombastic, but just good filmmaking, the creative process, the ability to promote well. I don't know that there's somebody out there that's really taken the mantle and become the next guy. And, and that's sad because I think that we need more of that. We need to be able to say, yeah, I can put my 
theatrical faith in an actor. Like I have, <laughs> I have many things to say about his vantage points in Scientology, but that's okay because he can separate that. I don't see Scientology all over the movies that he makes. I don't see him putting that in it. The fact Great is point. like what I think film, you know, what companies should do, which is stay out of politics, make your, you know, make your movies, sell your car insurance, do that and stop telling me what I should believe and you know how I should vote. It's not your bit it's not your job, it's not your business and it it taints your your product and your brand. I think that's what he does. Is he, he he's an actor in a rock a rock star. <laughs> he's a, he's a he's a movie star that champions the thing that he is in and nothing else. And I think that's what makes him come across as really genuine. It's why we like him. Yeah. Totally agree. And I think that all of those things are part of what makes it. The answer is no, that, that there isn't one out there right now. And I think it's largely a product of the way Hollywood has changed. And that's, I mean, it all serves to the whole point of this movie and that we're, what we were talking about there in the beginning of that, this being a meta thing for Tom about him and how he wants to save this type of adult blockbuster filmmaking. Like it doesn't exist in that way. And so actors that have been coming up, they're all in the Marvel pipeline. They're in the DC, it's all superhero, right? And so they're not learning from Tom in the way that that's not the way the the Hollywood works. And so I think it's going to be very hard for someone to replicate a Tom-like career and be as memorable as him, be as much of a, a generational star as him. I think Maybe the closest we could have had from a charisma standpoint, from a personality standpoint, is like a Chris Pratt. But the problem with Chris is that Chris says yes to everything. And part of what makes Tom Tom and what makes him such an amazing product is that he's selective. And so he doesn't just do everything someone asks him to do. Chris has multiple movies come out all the time. I mean, he's everywhere. He's coming out. I mean, and I love it. I love Chris Pratt for what he is. He's probably my favorite kind of movie star going right now. I want to watch everything he's in, but he's everywhere. He's voice acting. He's, you know, he's doing like multiple different super or uh, video game voice acting jobs. He's in an awesome sounding series coming this summer that I'm actually really looking forward to because it's like military related. He's in Jurassic World and that series leading it. He's Star-Lord and the Guardians of the Galaxy and all of the Avengers stuff. So he's everywhere. And so that's the thing. Tom wasn't everywhere. You know, you get a Tom movie, Tom movie, it's an event. And that is one of the things that separates him. And so I just don't know because that's not what Hollywood tells actors they need to be successful anymore. It's go do everything. That's what is now the definition of success. And so yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But enough of that. So let's let's talk about this film. Let's talk about the story. Let's just start at the top. And we'll kind of go through different points as I think we go. But we saw the footage in the trailer of him in this flight suit that looks like he's going to space. And so we always had this question of like, what the heck is going on? Why is Tom Cruise wearing a space helmet? <laughs> what did you think about this whole Dark Star sequence? Because for me all again with the meta nature and I'm like reading everything into it, but it felt very much like a right stuff moment for Tom Cruise where, you know, in that film, 
the characters are I mean, it's a biopic so they're actually doing the thing where they're well they're not doing it in the movie but they're representing the actual breaking of the sound barrier and here tom cruise is representing a fictional version of like we're breaking the next bound boundary that hypersonic is what they say barrier of going like Mach 10 which is unfathomable to me in a lot of ways um i thought it was awesome I, I thought it was an incredible way to open this movie a cr- incredible way to introduce us to where maverick was to get a, a look at how he has this very small close-knit team that clearly loves him and supports him we immediately get introduced to his crew chief engineer He's a warrant officer, I think. Uh, I I don't remember what his ranking was. It's never mentioned in the film, but his name's Hondo. Absolutely love the character just so much. And we get the Maverick, right? I I mean, it's that awesome. I mean, this is putting aside, of course, the actual opening of the film, which for no reason at all related to plot opens on a carrier giving us the danger zone. But thank you. Thank you very much, Tom and Kaczynski. (laughs) Yes. I, I, did people cheer? Because I cheered the first time I saw it. Um, no, uh, no audible. <laughs> I, I heard some. I heard some. I heard one like yes. Okay, that's good so. Enough. That's what. Maybe I that was me. Maybe I said I that didn't because jump I off. thought. Yeah. I thought this was fantastic, and I, I was kind of I was kind of cautious about getting excited because I was like, "Are we gonna basically do Top Gun again?" And in some ways, I did feel like there were some similar story beats when you open with that. And you're like, okay, uh, I guess instead of F-14s, we're getting F-18s because that's what we're flying. But I really think that's almost like when you open up with the Mission Impossible movies, just like the TV show, the Mission Impossible movies open up with like a a rush of images for the whole movie. We basically get the whole movie in a minute and a half sequence or a 30-second sequence. I think if Top Gun became a series, that's what you would open up with because it's such an iconic thing. I'll tell you this. I don't know if you remember Keith Hodges from our youth group days. Of course I remember Keith Hodges. Back in the days of Laserdisc, Keith had Top Gun on Laserdisc. And there was a night after our youth group where he invited my dad and myself over. And he said, I got to show you this. And Keith was always into tech. Like he would be the next, you know, Steve Jobs if he could go to Silicon Valley. That's the kind of guy he was just always kind of leaning forward. And so he pulled out this giant laser disc. And if you don't know what a laser disc is, even if you don't know what a CD is, just if you do, just amplify that by about like it's a record. Anyway, I'm giving references to the kids that don't know anything about any of this. Anyway, it was a giant disc <laughs> that played a movie and he put it in and he said, watch this. And so the opening sequence started playing and you have the bass of the, you know, do, do, do. And then, you have just this kind of build, build, build all the way up until the F-14s just go and start screaming. And you have Kenny Loggins, Danger Zone playing. The surround sound was what he wanted to let us listen to. Like, that's awesome. Isn't that awesome? So when we're in the theater and we're experiencing this, I'm having flashbacks to that moment of like, man, Keith would be so proud knowing that this is happening again. But that's kind of how I felt. I felt like this is kind of the comfort zone, not the danger zone, but the comfort zone. For fans of the I'll original move to the comfort, comfort zone. zone, right? But Can I also I thought it brought couch? in. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We're going to do that now. Just extend the podcast even more. 
I liked it. And I thought it was just a nice kind of hat tip to, we see you guys, we know you're here. We're going to give you something good. And then it kicks over to, as you said, we get to know where Maverick is. He's becoming the next Chuck Yeager. And there's a part of me that was thinking once he broke 10, Mach 10, which, wow. I mean, I'm just thinking, how is your face not a pancake after that? Because that is insane. Uh Um, At the end of it, I was just thinking, Chuck Yeager's going, dang it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can't break that one, dude. Yeah. Hondo sitting there in the control center. He's like, don't do it. Don't do it. And you just don't do it. I think this is one of the great things I think about the performance in the whole movie is that throughout it, Tom, to me, shows the maturity that has come for Maverick over the years. He's still got the desires. He's still brash. He still makes those mistakes. But you see it all the time. He clenches his jaw constantly when in moments where you would expect him to pop off and say something sarcastic, like to John Hamm's Admiral or even to Penny at times, like you can see him clinch. And I I believe it's intentional to show like this is a guy who is trying everything he can to essentially bite his tongue at times. And you see him doing this in the Dark Star, right, where we get that great moment where he hits 10 and it's just beautiful and we get that shot of it flying across the atmosphere the sky and the atmosphere and it's oh man it's amazing looking and then we cut to his face and he's just like hmm well i'm here now you can just tell what's going through his head and, he, and he's like <laughs> you know, just a just a little let's push, push. it a little bit more like, and, and it's just so indicative man of that character his what he has created going back to the first film of this person that just is always has to go a little bit further. And yes, sometimes it results in very poor decisions. Sometimes it doesn't. It's just, but it's who he is. It's not, he's not doing it for attention. He's not doing it to stand out or to be a rebel and push the barrier and break down, you know, all of these rules. Like it's just who he is. It is innate. It's in him. And sometimes he fights against it. And I I think it was a great way to kind of, Show that. And then the obviously the hilarious moment with the kid. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> I laughed so hard. Like a back to the future moment, right? I there. know. It's exactly. Like, I was waiting for him to be why are you Darth Vader? But um <laughs> But yeah, I know. I mean, and then talk about casting. So every casting in this movie to me was like so spot on, so incredible. Ed Harris filling in essentially in the James Tolkien role, because there's a lot of like in yeah. the X role in this movie dude i mean he is so awesome in his five minutes in this movie from the <laughs> control center i yeah. mean <laughs> when hondo's like has anybody offered you a coffee sir the look he gives him and then the look he gives the other kid when the kid's like yeah put that in your pentagon budget and goes, <laughs> i mean the way he shoots a look and you're just like oh shit like i that's you don't say that (laughs) ed harris looks like he would kill you or send you to guantanamo bay as a punishment or something you know so i just i loved him and i loved him kind of recreating that moment of and it and it calls me to say (laughs) as i was driving here just it's that james tolkien moment of i i gotta i gotta give you your shot i gotta send you jokers to top gun i mean it's it's brilliant and I just thought he was great. I wasn't expecting him personally. 
I don't know if mm-hmm. I just didn't remember he was in the movie because I the only trailer I watched was three years ago. So, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was a great surprise for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was something that when you mentioned the quote in the role of that was something that I was kind of questioning because when it comes to sequels like this, you wonder who's coming back, who's going to be in the driver's seat. Maverick is obviously there. Goose is obviously not there for obvious reasons, but how do you replace 30 plus years of characters? And so I was actually expecting Tom Skerritt at some point because he had such a pivotal role as Viper in the original. And I wondered, okay, are they going to, are they going to bring him back? And and this is really where you have to be careful with sequels, especially when you have characters that are beloved. And so watching the fact that they didn't, that they allowed for Val Kilmer as Iceman to come back so appropriately, so gently, and so importantly, but not bring all these other characters back. And I think it was such a smart move to be able to create those in the role of because Maverick needed that. He needed to be told, you're not hot stuff. You're not. And John Hamm is fantastic in this. Gravitas. He is absolutely. I I love John Hamm. I think he's just. Me too. I mean, he's just great in almost everything he does. And he's so believable in this actual in this actual role. Because you could tell that he doesn't want him here. He wants him he wants him gone. I mean, he said, You're not my first choice. <laughs> you weren't even on a list. <laughs> exactly. So You are here for one reason. Able- exactly. <laughs> because Iceman. And I respect sorry, I can quote the movie already. I know you can, and and that's fine to fine to do that. So it's just it, it really absolutely I mean, I think he's a great stand in for Viper because he really does bring some stability. For Maverick, he provides that, not sounding board, he provides that bouncing of dialogue and bouncing of conflict off of, off of, uh, was it Cyclone? Is that his, is that his call sign? So, yeah, he's Cyclone. Warlock is played by Charles, Charles Parnell, who is Mm -hmm. kind of sort of in the jester-like role. He doesn't really play the same, you know, because he's like the side, he's the other admiral. Um, and so, the, yeah, he's Cyclone and Warlock are the two admirals. And yeah, yeah I, I love it. I mean, he's, I agree with you. I think, and this is speaking to the nostalgic bits, which I guess we'll just kind of go through as we get to them. But the thing that I love the most about 90% of the nostalgia that's in this movie, Patrick, is that it is not in your face recreations of things and forced. Absolutely. It's not, it's, it's not told to you that it's there so Mm -hmm. while i can't imagine someone seeing this movie and having an incredible reaction to it in the way that i am without the deep love for the first one i just i just don't understand how you i mean yes i know that it works but i there's so much in it in the way that we honor viper not only in that performance and the kind of vibe he gives off but there are lines like maverick specifically says to rooster at one point rooster i think it's after um phoenix and bob go down and they're in the hospital he comes into the room and rooster's sitting there and it's incredibly reminiscent of maverick you know hanging his head after goose and he says you fly long enough you're gonna lose somebody 
it's going to happen. And that is a line that Viper specifically tells Maverick. And so again, it is that passing on of knowledge. It's that learning yeah. that Maverick is showing us. He clearly took away from Top Gun in his experience there, even though he was a young crazy fighter pilot at the time and it looked like he wasn't paying attention and that's how you respect viper is you yeah. have maverick now following in his footsteps in a way yeah what's interesting is i didn't remember that line that viper said that was when that was one that i did not remember going into this so the impact of it was just as powerful without that kind of reference that's but awesome. the but the ability of it to be able to double as a reflection of Maverick's growth, I think makes that even more fantastic on the more lighter side. Some of that callback, one of my favorite lines, and I think it's one of yours too, is, you know, Maverick gets into the Tomcat with rooster and you have that just uh, back and forth dialogue where he's like, yes. I don't know where half this stuff is. This is a relic. And he goes, I don't know where it is either. This is more of your dad's department. At some point during the dog fight, rooster says, do some of that pilot shit, Mav. And it's exactly yep. what his dad would say. And I can guarantee you, because we know how old this kid was when Goose died, Goose did not say that to his son. So it's not like he's trying to... Rip. It's a genetic thing. This is what he... Who he is. And it's a reflection of his heredity of being like his dad. We were talking tonight at dinner when we look at Miles Teller and how he made himself look like goose's son not look like goose but look like goose's son yes the mustache absolutely but the lighter hair the way that when he comes into the bar aaron with his glasses and his Dude. hawaiian oh, shirt i know i mean these are things that I'm, I'm thinking back to the original movie and i'm like he wouldn't have been more than six or seven you know or five or six at the time and we know that his dad loved to wear glasses in, indoors, like I guess a bunch of aviators. Uh, we saw that in our rewatch of Top Gun with Iceman doing his, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm awesome at the bar, you know, I'm talking ice cold, no mistakes, whatever. <laughs> Wearing your sunglasses at night, Corey Hart, whatever. But then we see how his dad was dressed and how he loved playing the piano. These are things that were passed on to Rooster because he wanted to honor his dad. And so when he says a line like that, again, for someone who's never seen the original, it's a funny line to begin with because it's funny when Goose says it, but it's even funnier because we know, just like his dad, he's, he sees uh, Maverick as, you're the one in charge, so go ahead and do it. And so I thought it was such a, a great duality of a line being delivered. And he does it so well. He sounds like Goose when he says it. It's not he's like so he's good. just, he really is. And this was a this was a really kind of cautious thing. I was like... Miles Teller, is he Goose's son? I don't really know if I want to invest in that. But man, he sold it. And I absolutely love it. I have a question for you, though, because this is something that we left okay. the theater going. Was Rooster's resentment to Maverick because of the loss of his father or because he had his papers pulled or was it a combination? I couldn't quite understand. Oh, a combination. A definitely okay. a combination of both. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think... He he definitely resents Maverick for being the cause of his father's death. And I think I, I person my reading of it is that he knows that it's not Maverick's fault, but his dad's gone. <laughs> and mm -hmm. 
so what? Who cares who's, you know, about reality at that point? You were the man in the plane. And I think because Maverick took the angle of pulling his papers. So I don't believe, like, Maverick was close with his mom, clearly. And we get the sense he says before she died, she made me promise that I would not let him go up, right? And that that, I mean, oh gosh, what a moment of reveal of that, by the way. Um, and perfect response by Penny, too, to just say hard choices. Um, but he is, I believe they had a relationship before that is what I'm getting at. Like, as Rooster was growing up as a kid, I believe Maverick was in his life. I mean, he said he was trying to be the father that he lost. So I feel like the pulling of the papers was really the linchpin. Like at that point, he's getting old enough to where he can start having that resentment be bigger than when it was when he was six or seven and doesn't really have those feelings. And so I think, you know, now he has a goal in his life and a dream. And this guy who is already close with takes it away from him. And it's the guy that took your dad away. Like then that comes back. That's how I see that kind of showing out. Yeah. I think, I think the timeline is what sort of throws me off with, with all of that. Because when I, when I watch the original Top Gun and I see how young he is, and I think if he's no more than six, then 30 years have flown by, no pun intended. <laughs> and we have him now looking like a young aviator. And I can believe that because he's four years delayed, but I had a hard time making that connection of Okay, is he holding on resent on to resentment for Maverick losing his dad? I won't say killing his dad because somebody has to take the blame. Someone has to be blamed for it, and obviously Maverick has been holding on to this. But I think you're right. That makes sense that it was exacerbated by the fact that he wants to live that legacy for his dad. He wants to honor his dad by flying. And the fact that Maverick, who has this power, has the ability to take that away. I think that fueled the fire. And so for me, I look at Rooster as someone who recognizes that his dad's death can't be completely attributed to Maverick, but this thing can cinch it as being like, this is not a relationship I want. And from the very beginning, it's such a really interesting dynamic watching them on the flight line and watching, um, who was it? Watching Hangman see them mouth and the body language that they give each other mm -hmm. feels so yep. there's so much tension there. I think that it's a great setup to help kind of create this icy water that Maverick has to navigate through in order to be able to eventually get through to rooster. And that's, that's what makes a part of what makes this movie so, so effective is that it's not just Maverick kind of exercising his demons but knowing that his demons are now affecting someone else and that he needs to walk him through, not just as a teacher, but as a mentor, as a friend. And they're both trying to find that common ground of forgiveness. I think Maverick never really forgave himself for what Goose did or what, what happened to Goose. And I think it's exacerbated by the fact that it now affected someone else that he was close to. So having that be the thing really made a lot of sense to really push this story forward. Absolutely. And I think it doubles as the, you know, from a 
maverick plot point of he came in as the young fighter pilot who was always going to push the edge and push the limit because he had this kind of special talent. And I think Rooster has this talent. Like he, he obviously graduated from Top Gun. He gets nothing but dogged on by Hangman about, but it's all because they consistently talk about how he's reluctant, right? Which makes perfect sense. Your dad died in a jet and you're doing the same thing. There's going to be something there, right? In the back of your mind about going to that place, that just going too far, right? And I think we see that and we get to watch it kind of change to the point where we get the lines over and over, don't think, just do, just fly. Just You have to trust your instincts, your training, you have it. You have what it takes, it's in you, you're capable, don't get in your head, right? Just go. And I think we see that's what Maverick brings out in him. So he brings out the best in him. And of course, it's going to go down in dramatic, crazy fashion, which we want that, right? I saw some people criticize. Not a lot of criticism in this movie for most people, thankfully, because I would just lose my mind if I would have to look at it constantly. But some people were like, oh my gosh, yes, but it's so freaking predictable. What, what did you want? Did you want Maverick to die just because? Like just to have your unpredictability so it would be funny or to be shocking? Like, no, this is what I want. I don't care if it's predictable in the end. Like, I care about the journey of getting from A to B. I I want the happy ending. I want Maverick to end with a family, dude. He is a completely different person. He is out of the Navy, essentially retired or whatever. Not out of the Navy, maybe, but he's grounded. And he's able to fly in a different way with someone he loves. Amelia's there and very clearly kind of a surrogate father to her. Obviously a surrogate father slash friend to Rooster, who has no one, as we have learned, because his mom has died. I mean, it is a beautiful ending. Like, I I think it's crazy that people just want unpredictability in their movies, to me. I think that is a terrible thing that has happened in Hollywood, where it's like, we just care about the twist. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but so yeah, I I love the Rooster relationship. I, I love Rooster's relationship with Phoenix. I feel like there's something there. And I like that the film doesn't go any deeper on it. They clearly have a bond of some kind, a relationship that has, you know, gone on. They know each other. There's this hint of, you know, interest in each other, but it's never the focus, which I think is very realistic. Like that wouldn't be the focus for them in a three week training period where they're about to go on a real mission and put their lives on the line. That's not what matters. But I like the way that the characters are introduced. So, Let's go there. Let's go to the, well, yeah. Let's talk about the new class. So I was very nervous. I'm going to put that on front street. I was in, I was just worried to death. Didn't know a lot of these actors. Thought this could be where the movie really sinks itself. And when I came out of it the first time, I didn't have any criticisms per se, but my nitpicks were that I was a little bit, not sold on some of these newbies. I thought they were maybe kind of underused or they weren't, they just didn't. I think the the main thought I had, Patrick, was that they weren't very memorable to me in the way that the original crew and their personality types stood out. Having seen it now a couple more times, I would attribute that primarily to the fact that I've seen the original maybe a hundred times. And so it's really not fair 
to compare that. And I, they grew on me big time. I had a little bit of a beef with Hangman at first because he really pushes the Iceman mold and kind of twists it into this almost true antagonist. Like Iceman is not an antagonist. Iceman is actually the best pilot. Like he wins for a reason. He follows the rules and has the talent. He is the guy that you need with you because he is predictable and safe while also being incredible, right? There's a reason that he is the commander of the Pacific Fleet now. He does things that way. He commands that respect. He's an he's a great leader. And that's not Hangman. Hangman is like a jerk. He I was about to say something else, but like he's a, a true jerk, like to the point where I was starting to worry, like, okay, but this guy, like, there's a difference in the idea of, I'm going to go do this thing, I think you're okay, but I'm going to go get this other guy, and leaving your wingman out to dry, and legitimately not caring about the lives of those that are up there with you. So Maverick never gave me that feeling, that he was, didn't care about the other people. Right, I mean, hey, he, did. he actually, <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in in Top Gun, Maverick said, I can't remember who he's talking to, but he says, "Oh, he's talking to Charlie," and he says, "When I'm up in the air, my plane and my crew are the first thing I think about." He, I mean, he genuinely cares, and I think you're exactly right. Hangman does come across as this guy who's like, "If you're not pulling your weight, sorry." <laughs> I mean, you're an aviator just like me. Sorry, you can't hang with me. So I I look at him differently now in the same way that you do. I do have a question, and I didn't mean to interrupt your thought, but I was going to ask, when it comes to call signs, Ah. it's my understanding that call signs are not given by the person themselves. They're given by their crew or their squadron. Is that that how it works, that you're given a call sign by, do you know? I wasn't in an aviation squadron, so I wouldn't know. Fun fact, though, speaking of squadrons, this movie had some of the... I want to call it an AWAC, but the the plane that does the radar during the third act, mm-hmm. during the actual yeah. attack sequence. So the squadron that flies those and that one, that was all of the third act and the mountains and the raid was filmed here in the Cascade Mountains at Washington. Oh, and cool. they were came out of NAS Whidbey Island, which was my last duty station, was the reserve center. That's awesome. At NAS Whidbey Island. Like I have, as a chief petty officer, I have inducted new chief petty officers from the squadrons and the fighter squadrons and stuff that are at that base and so i don't know it was just it was really cool, cool that they did some of it there and that some of it, like those mountains or knowing that those are like in my backyard just kind of yeah. gave it a pump but yeah i wasn't in aviation myself so i don't know there i i'd like to believe they do because they explain early on do you know Phoenix what we call him says hangman? that's why we call him hangman because he'll because he leaves you out to dry yeah and like bob which i think you and i would both agree <laughs> is that's dude it's so good fan. i think it, it Krisha asked me, well, did we never find out what Bob's call sign was? I think I think it was Baby on Board. I think that's what it no, was. No, that's what, that's what Hangman said. He's like, he's, oh, like okay. he, he's trying to come up with it. He's like, let's talk about it. And they're trying to go on with the, the training app, or op, and then right at the last minute, right before Maverick comes flying up between them, which, by the way, the... F that moment. Oh, my I've, gosh. Like, are oh you my kidding God, me? He's <laughs> but he's like, he's like, oh, I got it. It baby on board. And then that's when, but like he was, he was just making jokes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I just, it got me, got me wondering, 
but yeah, I look at him as someone who he pushes that envelope of being completely antagonistic and like, I don't want to love that guy, but I, but I like whether it's expected or not seeing him come back up, but not lose that arrogance. So I look at all these characters as sort of having the essence of the attitudes of some of these, some of these guys, like there was Wolfman that we didn't get to see a lot of, but I I saw a little bit of Wolfman and Hangman in terms of the way that he kind of, you know, personified himself, like just laid back, whatever. Iceman was just more reserved and you didn't see that in really many of the characters, but you saw components of these other aviators from Top Gun that live in the bodies of these other ones. And again, there's an updated version of them. We don't have to go back to 1986 and see a retread of Slider or Wolfman or any of these guys. Um, you know, I'd love to see Merlin come back, obviously, because I love Tim Robbins, but that wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> so it's, I also, I just get a kick out of all the call signs. I think you've got Fanboy, who's not much. I mean, there's nothing about him, but I love his call sign. I think when they go into the bar, there's uh, there's Harvard and Yale. So apparently these guys are, you know, they come from either money or or whatnot. And it just, obviously call signs make you think about the personalities of these types. And so when you see Phoenix, I think, okay, is this someone rising from the ashes? Is it someone who is a legacy from, from someone else? I don't know. Is it the first, the fact that, you know, she's all throughout the movie, Hangman gives her crap about not being a dude. And I love the fact that she does not waver, that she doesn't lose her crap, that she is very much about, look, the mission. We're going to do this. I mean, she's very straightforward, not going to, not going to deviate from this, but she also sees the respect that what Maverick can do. And there's that line that I, I'm going to watch it tomorrow and hopefully it will, it'll land better. But at the end, when hangman says, you know, I've got my two Migs," and she's like, well, Maverick has five. And I'm like, that just sounds a little, little hokey. Um, no, 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 I, I just, It's so good. Just, it's so good. Okay. I, that's a, that's a real pilot thing. So he's like, She's like, you got yourself another kill, and you know that's two. And he's like, yeah. And she goes, Maverick's got five. That makes him an ace, and that is the true definition of an ace. Like in okay. the aviation, like you know, we Joe, we say that all the time as like non-military <laughs> folks or whatever, like people who just watch these things and look at naval aviators as these heroic people in the sky or whatever. We're like, all these are ace pilots. But the actual term ace is re- reserved for that, for like actual like kills. Gotcha. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not common. Like, I mean, that, and that's one of the things I wondered how an audiences would take this because we're so desensitized to the amount of violence <laughs> and destruction that for Maverick to only have five total quote kills in his entire life, five shot, five planes shot down. And for, hangman to literally be like the best in the in the fleet right now on active duty and have one <laughs> but that's the reality of the times that's why ed harris is the drone ranger as they called him because it's all about like <laughs> you know there, this this is not something that happens we don't these are not engagements and this is a big part of what the military and the navy specifically 
does like we it, it's deterrence people like i know you see it on tv when we invade afghanistan and you see like the ground troops the very few instances where there are engagements are always made a big deal about in the news but we exist for deterrent we yeah. do ops and we practice we can spend a 20-year career in the navy putting around on a boat going on six-month deployments fake shooting tomahawk missiles and never ever ever see them go off and actually after a target that's actually the ideal situation because that means that there's no war that means there's no battle being fought and so it's kind of weird you know because in our that's not fun in a movie um (laughs) you want to see the fight and that's good perspective because you're right i mean we we live in an age where we have a false sense of what the military does and it's because we watch all of these engagements, even if they're biopics, even if they're based on true stories, we're seeing real stuff happen. We're seeing battles that take place and people getting killed, and that's what we see as normal. And the fact is, the government military operation is a preventative operation. It's all about defending. I mean, we talk about defending our country, defending our country. Well, that means being ready, being prepared. And I think there was a line that was said in the first movie and it's kind of repeated this idea of losing a multi-million dollar plane or you know breaking these types of things you know you don't pay for that the taxpayers do and it's you know we laugh at those lines but the fact is i mean it's a huge waste of money if some dude just goes off and decides he's going to buzz the tower or he might you know break a plane where it can't fly i think at one point maverick says when the f-18 hits 10 uh 10 uh, Mach 10 or Mach 9, it becomes unstable and it can't be flown again. I think something like that. If you think about that in real dollars, I mean, that's, is that a waste to do that every day for training? Is that a waste of a, of taxpayer money? It might be. Well, yeah, he, he crashes it. (laughs) And then it's the, it's the F-18 that he steals and it's, it's Admiral um, Cyclone. It's ham at the end when he's like giving him the news that he's going to be the team leader. He's like, you've kind of put me in a pickle here. And he's like, you know, you've stole a multi-million dollar plane and flew it in a way, in a manner in which it may never be airworthy again. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so there's something interesting about the lack of glamor and about the elevation of the realistic killing. And I think that's something I want to talk about is the fact that in both Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, there's no enemy that's named. It's not Afghanistan. It's not China. It's not whatever. Krisha had this really interesting response to it. She's like, it's just like our government to just go after some random structure and just blow it up. And I thought, <laughs> no, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. And, and I'm, I'm probably misquoting her. If she listens to this episode, I'm going to apologize right now. Krisha, I'm sorry if I've misquoted you. But what I understood from what she was saying her beef is the fact that we're just we just go after targets. Like they're not doing anything to us. Obviously, as civilians or as an audience at this point, we don't know about all the recon that's taken place. We don't have that kind of intelligence because we're not in the military or we're not civilians that are embedded in this thing like Charlie was in Top Gun, where she knows a ton about what's going on in the world. But I thought it was interesting that in both, there is no actual enemy. And I think what that does, Aaron is that it makes what we see on screen and everything leading up to it being about the people themselves. It's never about the mission. 
It's about being able to execute. It's about being able to go out there and do what you're preaching to your flight squadron. The fact that Maverick says, we have to do this in 230. And if I have to prove to you that it can be done in 230, and he does in 215, we're going to do that. Now we can nitpick this thing all day and say, well, how did they get so ready in, you know, in just a week? Who cares? The fact is the point of the story is to tell you that you can do this and you will do this. And it's something that it doesn't matter who the enemy is. We're not trying to preach that China is the bad guy that we're attacking. It's not a political movie. And again, this goes back to what we talked about with Tom Cruise, that he never inserts his own personal convictions about his beliefs politically or religiously or spiritually, whatever. This is what Top Gun does. Both. They never exercise the notion that, okay, what is, you know, who's the common enemy? The fact is there's always going to be one. There's going to be an enemy. Somebody's going to be pissed off at the U S or pissed off. And there's always going to be wrong being done somewhere else. That's not the U S. And I think that's what makes both Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick timeless. I don't believe when I watch Top Gun that it's taking place in 1986. There's nothing about it that tells me, oh yeah, this is an eighties movie. It's absolutely not because the uniforms haven't changed that much. We're still in kind of a small world of naval aviation on an aircraft carrier at Miramar or wherever. Same thing in Top Gun Maverick. Now, do I feel like there has been some time lapse? Yes, because <laughs> Tom Cruise has gotten older. Doesn't look like it sometimes, but he has. But nothing has changed when it comes to the purpose and the value of what is being said here. And that's that the mission whatever it is, whoever the enemy is, it's not about the enemy. It's about how you perform. It's about the pilot and not about anything else and about the team. And I think that that theme stays intact in both movies. That's great. I completely agree with you on this movie in particular, that I, I think that's one of its strengths as well, is that the non-named enemy, and it's just someone rogue is creating this operational plant full of ukrainian ukrainium <laughs> woo sorry ukraine vibranium uh, is it vibranium Wait, no, uranium <laughs> ukrainium <laughs> uranium and going to have these nuclear weapons that are operational and also basically it's really more about the fact that it's going to contaminate this valley and they are trying to protect that from happening and i and i love it because it's not named and it's not, you know, like you said, politicized. I would say it's also not politicized in the first film because it's not focused on as a point in the story, as a driver. Just like you said, it's not about that. That's just what happens in, when the action's going on. But it's all about what the, is in the heads and the actual, you know, growth of the people. But I, I do believe differently that it is very much a cold war movie and it, it is maybe that's because i've just seen it so many times but they're in the indie ocean they are fighting off russian nigs specifically it is during the cold war no fly zones are a thing we are competing with the russians for space and in the oceans and in the skies and the whole reason that they are protecting those carriers and the reason they're going out there in the end of Top Gun 1 to protect that uh, the ship that has gone dead in the water is because 
if the Russians find you across this imaginary stupid lines that we've created in our world, like they will shoot you down because that was the way that the world was operating at the time. So that was kind of the whole conflict. And so it was, I agree with you that it was never put forth in a way that is like bad Russians, but it was very specific to the time that that was the threat. And I think that that follows through here. The threat now is that somebody crazy is just going to start building a, you know, going to go get the resources and start building a, a bomb, right? Or a plant. And so I love, love, love that it, it is so not a plot point. <laughs> I'm completely <laughs> in agree with, with you. Uh, I wanted to, so real quick, to kind of wrap up on the side crew, I am in love with Phoenix. I think she's incredible. I'm so glad that they added her into this. I actually went immediately to Aya Letterboxd and was like, her name's Mar- Monica Barbaro, Mar- Barbaro, Barbaro. And I was like, what movies has she been in so that I can binge them? Sadly, she hasn't been in a lot of movies. She's been in a couple TV shows. But uh, yeah, I absolutely just think she's great in the film. Uh, Great performance, great character. And Hangman really grew on me. So Glenn Powell is the actor's name. And I have come to think that this is just an incredible standout performance. Like the consistency in which he pulls this off and the ultimate power in the singular moment that really sells him for me as being somebody I can take when he walks up silently on the flight deck, when they're about to launch and he just stands there face to face with Brewster. Nobody says anything for a couple beats and he just says, you give him hell. And then he walks off like that to me was what it was all about. Like that was the moment when it's like, okay, he does know he can have this rivalry he can call it like it is because it matters to him. Like when he call, he he's not wrong, Patrick. When they're doing those ops and Rooster, and he's like, "You're flying too slow," and yep. he's like, "You do yep. not get it. A man either flies like Maverick here flies, or a man does not come home." And he's dead right, even though it's a great joke afterwards, where he's like, looks at Phoenix and he's like, "No offense," and Bob's like, "Yet somehow you always manage." But anyway, but like he's he's right. <laughs> Rooster, you can't fly like that, period. Or you're not coming back. Somebody with you is not coming back. And you got to respect that part of him. And I think that shines through in the end. And it makes yeah. him someone that I, I truly care about. And I I just thought that that performance is great. And I want to give a quick note. So if you didn't get the trailer for this, he is actually in another aviation movie starring with Jonathan Majors in a movie called Devotion that is coming out this fall, this October. I cannot freaking wait. If you haven't seen the trailer, Patrick, it looks awesome. So it's about the real-life Navy fighter pilots in the Korean War. It's a Korean War air air dogfighting movie, essentially, and and it stars Glenn Powell in it, too, and Jonathan Majors, who's incredible. So um, really hyped for it, too. And I think this guy is going to blow up after this movie, Glenn Powell. He was in Everybody Wants Some, the Richard Linkletter baseball movie. Um, Much different, kind of more of a comedic, straight up comedic role. But yeah, I I just loved him, man. I I really, the whole cast has grown on me in a big, big way. And and I'm excited to revisit. I'm excited to revisit uh, when we go see it in the next 24 hours. I think more than anything else, when we look at this crew of characters, 
I'm always interested to see the reels and how they are devoted to each other. Something I want to pay attention to is the pairings, particularly the ones that have dialogue. So I believe Phoenix and Bob are are paired up. I'd like to watch them more the second time around just to see how they interact. Because something that the first movie had going for it so well is this brotherly companionship that these reels had with their pilots. And a lot of time it was for comedic effect, but you know, you had you had the uh the one of my favorite lines you've got um in the debriefing room, Iceman says the plaque for the alternates is in the ladies' room and Goose just cracks up and then he looks at the the plaque with nobody's name from that year and he goes, Oh, there's two O's in Goose Boys. But watching how he and Maverick interact, watching how Iceman and Slider interact, I'm curious if I, as I watch it the second time, if there's going to be that kind of devotion or that kind of companionship fighting for one another. I want to hear the dialogue between Phoenix and Bob in particular, since they've got the most screen time to see, do they have that kind? How long? Because you know, we never know how long they've been together as pilot. Well, we do and, know and because she's when they meet each other at the bar, she's like, you're Bob. You're my new reel. Cause oh, OK. You're from Sorry. Little yeah. Bob from Lamore. Yeah, so they're brand new okay. together, but but Coyote gotcha. and Fanboy seem to be a, a crew. Like Coyote and okay. Fanboy have flown together. Like they're well, the and other that makes sense. Pairing. Yeah, because all those guys are coming from all over the place. They don't necessarily have to be paired up, and and of course, what throws a wrench into that is the fact that you've got Rooster and Hangman who are not. They don't have reels. They're solo, at least. So that's something I want to really pay attention to: is how these characters are paired up with each other, but who's actually single in the cockpit, who has a a person behind them. That's, I think that's probably the most difficult part of watching Top Gun Maverick with the safety net of Top Gun is that I'm used to F-14 Tomcats, two in the cockpit. You've got Cougar and Merlin, Maverick and Goose, and you've got these other pairings throughout the, the rest of the, of the movie. It's different here. And I think that, Maybe that's by design because you've got these characters that are some are just meeting each other like Phoenix and Bob. How does that work? How do they eventually you know, work together? And it, you know, for my own kind of narrative brain, I kind of wonder, okay, are Bob and Phoenix going to stay together? Is that going to be something that they continue? Obviously I don't want to see that played out on screen. I just like the idea of thinking, is this where, is this where connections happen where you're just sort of put together uh, because obviously Top Gun had the established crews. This is something that I think Top Gun Maverick does well is it shows the awkwardness and it shows the almost some of the insecurities of working with new people. You're the best of the best. And now you have to work together. You're not trying to beat out one another. I mean, yes, you are for the mission, but it's not like Top Gun. You've already won Top Gun. Now you're coming back for a mission how do you get better? And I think that question was asked in the movie is you're the best of the best. Now it's time to show who really is the best of the best of the best in that regard. That's not what's said, but that's kind of what's, you know, alluded to. So that's something I, I definitely want to take a look at when we watch and, uh, and just see how that all plays out. Yeah, definitely. I, I'll be curious to hear any follow-up thoughts you have as well. So feel free to always share those with me offline. I want um, a good, I want a good call sign. 
I don't know what mine would be. Yeah, I I need I need to think about it more too because I would really like one as well. I guess we're supposed to give each other is what we were saying. Well, we should think about that. Uh, maybe we can come up with something. Maybe we'll share them next week. We'll on our episode. We'll My call check in or something. <laughs> That's actually not bad. That's pretty good. I think I have more than you though. Well, no, you may have caught up. Mm, anyway, getting off hand. Anyway. We both have yeah. a lot. That's the point. Um, yeah, I wish to think about that. So. There's still so much more to talk about. Let's get into it. So, Penny. Let's talk about Penny. He meets Penny at the bar. I have seen this movie with multiple people now. And when the light bulb goes on, it was great with my roommate, Ryan, who is a beloved fan of the first film, seen it dozens upon dozens of times, just like us. And for him not to notice it day one, moment, the first moment, when he when he noticed and he leaned over and realized like, oh, it was phenomenal. And it was the same thing I did when I first saw it and leaned over next to the person I was watching it with. And I was like, that's Penny Benjamin. Because I didn't know going into this movie. I didn't know who Jennifer Connelly was playing. And I thought it was fantastic to twist that whole bar scene around completely that we see an actual Top Gun into one where Maverick is the old guy that people are making fun of and that people are calling pops and to make him then have to later walk into the classroom and have Hangman and Coyote react in the same way that Maverick and Goose reacted when Charlie walked in. But anyway, but for him to meet Jennifer Connelly, and, and here's the thing that I loved about this relationship. A, Jennifer Connelly is, is just aces, and it's insane to me that she is 52 years old. Wow. Uh, what uh, what a... God's blessed her in her aging, is what I guess I should say. But she, it's a great performance, and it is exactly the type of person that Maverick would need at this point in his life. And all it does, it doesn't call it out, the only real references to tie this in and make sure we know it's that Penny and she's never referenced as Penny Benjamin is that she says something about like, well, got you in trouble this time. And he's like, yeah, you know, pissed off an admiral. And she's like, yeah, you do that a lot, which calls back to the whole point of goose sitting there. And he's like, Penny, the admiral. Oh, oh, and James Tolkien is talking to him and he's going off the list of, you know, things like flybys and one one admiral's daughter daughter, and goose is like Penny Benjamin. (laughs) And so we learned that they've had this ongoing relationship their entire lives, like on and off again, boyfriend, girlfriend. D- dude, I never thought Maverick and Charlie were going to stick. And I think that's fine. I like that. I like that they follow through with that, honestly. And for him to have this relationship with her, for her to be such a person that is so strong in his life and content with where she is and happy, and she pushes him forward, but she never tells him what to do she just supports him it's all about support it's beautiful absolutely beautiful she doesn't go easy on him you know what i mean like she makes him stand up for things when he like puts himself on the bar she makes him buy around period she kicks him out when he doesn't able to pay the tab and i just i love the way that their relationship progresses and then maybe the best thing about it to me is that when they get to the moment where they're going to, quote, fall in love again. We're going to get the sex scene. A, the tactful way in which it starts with him pulling up, 
her getting off the bike and just opening the door and walking in and walking out, leaving the door open. I just, I was grinning so big. I was like, man, that's a, that's a great way to do it. But we, we get the editing. He goes in, he lays her down and starts to kiss her. And we cut immediately to them laughing and talking in bed. Obviously post-coital, whatever. Who cares? Maybe, probably, but who cares? It doesn't matter. Because that's not what it's about. And what they're talking about is life. And they're truly in a relationship in a way that is not based on the singular sexual act. It was the most non-Hollywood thing I think I've seen in years. And I was so happy to have it displayed that way, family-friendly, for all ages, essentially, so respectful and such a beautiful, tender moment that really connected them together. Like I said, where they're having that conversation about the hard choices that she's had to make with Amelia and growing up and having to trust her and deal with this, obviously, a divorced parent. Her dad, like Amelia says, her dad's in Hawaii with his wife. There's clearly some issues there, the way she says it. And then she kind of gets to take that back and tell Maverick and say, you know, the same thing with him and Rooster. And she's like, Maybe that's, maybe you need to trust him, right? And it's, and of course it plays out hilariously in the high school way of him getting kicked out the window and Amelia dropping the bomb of just don't break her heart again, right? I mean, I don't know. I just, I think it is absolutely chef's kiss, a perfect scene. And I, I could not have wanted more from the romantic relationship part of this movie. I think it needed to be there. I think it has purpose. And that it is just absolutely wonderful. But I mean, I hope you liked it too. <laughs> no, I really did. And and I co-signed Jennifer Conley and just leave it at that. I mean, if we're being honest, she is wonderful. I've always loved her as an actress. Um, Krisha describes her as being married to uh, Vision. <laughs> and I go, he's got a name. And she's like, I know, but I just know him as Vision. And I'm like, well, I know him as Chaucer. So if we're going to just do that, then let's Is she let's actually married that. to... Mm-hmm. Paul, um, Bettany is, yeah, Bettany. I did not, didn't yeah, know that. She, she's married to him, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting pairing. Again, I don't know these people from Adam, but I think it's, uh, I, I think they're still married. Um, I don't keep up with them like I, like I used to. <laughs> I never kept up with them anyway. I was about to, ask. but I, 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 I think I had an interesting reaction to this because I didn't, when you watch the trailers and you're like, is this the new Charlie? Is this Charlie like? 30 years later because obviously that's not believable dark hair or whatever and so i knew it was a i knew it was a, a new love interest and there was obviously some of the replication of you know riding on his motorcycle and then of course in the movie we get the porsche these callbacks to charlie and her hair waving in the wind what i liked about this aaron was i think if i had to make some kind of theory up this is the relationship and the chemistry that should have been in the first one because as I watch Top Gun, and I think Kelly McGillis is very, very pretty in that movie, the chemistry doesn't seem to work in light of this relationship with Penny. There is no depth. There is a romance and a seduction that starts out as sort of a lighthearted kind of, haha, I'm going to try to get you in bed and I'm going to make Goose lose the bet because I'm going to make him think that we actually had sex in the bathroom and and then we have a couple of kind of standout moments where he gets mad at her and they eventually 
do that scene, which by the way, I found this out tonight that that scene was actually put in later because their chemistry when tested against uh, with a test audience was not working. And so they included that scene post-production. And if you look closely, Kelly McGillis is actually pregnant at that point and she's got dark hair. That's why they silhouette her most of the time or put her in dark lighting because of those two things. And when we were talking about that tonight, my wife goes, yeah, I just never saw, I never liked their chemistry. Again, they look beautiful on screen. I mean, they're beautiful people in 1986. But what this brings is a relationship, like you mentioned. There is substance, there's depth. It's actually, in some ways, a redemptive type of thing for Maverick because he mentioned that he he wanted to be that stand-in father figure for Rooster. And he wasn't able to do that because of the conflict that they had. And he's got that now. I mean, he's got that friendship with him after i think it's less fatherly and more of like okay i've i'm your teacher i'm your mentor i'm your friend but what he has is now what i think he was missing sometimes maybe in his relationship with his dad this idea of being able to stand in as a father being trustworthy being able to be vulnerable that's what i think is really really nice in this relationship is that he has two or three great moments with her where he just essentially admits he's scared. He doesn't know what to do. And that line you mentioned earlier where he talks about being conflicted and she goes, man, yeah, tough choices. She recognizes that she can't be the fixer and she's not that for him, that she's absolutely going to be whatever he needs her to be. And it's not cheap. It doesn't feel like she is just a throwaway relationship. And starting from the very beginning when he runs into her (laughs) They, that whole scene is so great because we have this great dialogue. And then I noticed this. She actually wipes the counter and wipes around his cell phone at some point. Oh, like yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't move it. She just wipes around it as she's talking she, to him. She notices it multiple times and doesn't yeah, say Yeah, and she anything. looks down yeah. at Yeah, and doesn't say anything. And then she rings the bell and everyone's like, yeah. And then we see the sign. And that scene is a great setup for her character because it shows how capable she is. We get in the first few minutes of their conversation. She owns a bar. She sails. She has a daughter. I mean, all these things that are very much like she's a very capable woman and Jennifer Conley is a very capable woman. And so I love the casting here. I love the fact that this is not just another love interest for the sake of the story. It anchors him in some ways. Again, I'm going to use a little Rocky reference. She's sort of like an Adrian to him. Not to that point that Rocky is with Adrian, but she does anchor him in small ways because she's able to be that sounding board for him. Where she he... Oops. An- <laughs> I keep throwing in Navy fun. Sorry. But not sorry. But yeah, I-, I thought this was actually probably the biggest breath of fresh air for me because I didn't know if I was going to like her. I didn't know if it was going to be I mean, yes, I like Jennifer Conley, but is it going to work for the story? And this absolutely does. So, so I, you would I, say I'm, kudos. Took your breath of fresh air away. It did take my breath of fresh air away. <laughs> so, oh goodness, we've been going a while. We're de- de- devolving. Get loopy. You're late yeah, back. Get loopy. Bit. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you called out the nostalgia piece there too, because the Porsche. We only see it twice, by the way. I, I'm starting to like the details now I'm picking them all up, but 
we see it once when he pulls up to her house and it's parked. There's a quick shot of it. And I'd never noticed it before that, before my third viewing, until the, the last shot where the scene and he looks out and there she is. And I'm glad you noticed the hair because I've been telling people that too, that no other time in this film is her hair wavy like that at all. It is never, ever doing that. It is very clearly a callback to Kelly McGillis's character. And I, and I think it's beautiful. I think that's really good too because you don't have Kelly in the movie doesn't make sense to and that's fine but at least you're still paying respect to her just like you did to viper right and those roles and their importance to people and their impact on people and so i thought that those were a great like again simple non-talked about not in your face doesn't tell you what it's doing you either just notice it or it just works on its own without you having a clue my wife had I think she was kind of on with this movie because she pointed out the fact that Jennifer Connelly is taller than Tom Cruise. And so everybody is, and they show it in this movie (laughs) so many times. But if you notice most of the time she's leaning over or she's bent down. And I think my wife at some point said, yeah, the moments that Tom Cruise was standing next to her, I think he had to be on a platform of some kind because he is definitely, I think he's like five, seven, like he is not a tall He's dude. five, six, five, seven. Yeah. Like when he's talking to Miles Teller, like on the flight lines and they have those wide shots like and he's like contact. looking up at Miles Teller and Miles <laughs> is like looking down at him and he's like talking like crap. And then it's funny. It's even more funny when it's John Hamm because John Hamm is a naturally like tall man. Mm-hmm. He's like six something yeah. or whatever. And Maverick like walks up and he's like all like a shrimp. Iceman, we we can't we got to talk about Iceman real quick. So again, petitions to get Val Kilmer in the movie. Uh, Again, with I think brilliant execution. If you knew nothing about Val Kilmer's condition and life, and all you knew is that this was an actor playing a role, and that in this story, this actor, this character has cancer of some kind that is not allowing him to talk. It works perfectly. You don't need the backstory, the real life understanding. But having it, boy, it is impactful. The way that they text throughout, as soon as that started happening, I was just like, man, this is awesome. This is really cool. They found a way to do it. And that scene with him and them together just beautiful and, and again and i love that it doesn't take a lot of words iceman just points at a screen and point and types a couple times for the most part and lets maverick talk himself through things and work his way in a way that no one else he doesn't trust anybody else to talk like that to right you very much see the relationship that they have built you don't have to see it happen that's what's beautiful we don't know at all what took place in their careers together in the last 30 years but because of this movie, there is no doubt that these two men have been like lifelong close friends their entire careers. And you see that playing out here. And it's just, it's so touching. You see him cry, and then Ice actually speaking, right? Val Kilmer actually speaking, and what he says being so smart, so simple. You know, the Navy needs Maverick, the kid needs maverick and i love the final line too i mean i love that this movie is so smart because it understands that when we're getting those very heavy emotional beats that come there's a perfect amount of levity and it's not a marvel sarcastic thing that's the beauty 
That's what's different is Marvel makes it a sarcastic remark. That's their quote levity, their way of diffusing joking, right? But it's so much simpler here. He just says, who's the better pilot? You or me? And <laughs> Maverick's like, let's not ruin a good moment. <laughs> it's so awesome, man. It's yeah. so awesome. I just, I, I get teary every time I see that scene. Yeah. I, I will say this. Um, we, we'll talk about the practical effects here in just a little bit, because obviously we can't not talk about that. There are some special effects that take place in the movie. And one of them is actually in this scene. I read that, uh, you know, Val Kilmer with his throat cancer cannot speak. And he actually worked with a London based company to recreate his voice so that he could speak those few lines in the movie. And I don't care. I don't it's care that AI, it was recreation. It's crazy. I know. It is. But you cannot tell at all. At all. I thought in that moment that he was talking. And I didn't care that I knew that he wasn't. Because the fact is, I was thinking in my head, Aaron, I, I think that Tom Cruise would want one extra take so that he could hug Val Kilmer instead of saying Iceman, he would say Val. Because I think just like in some ways you have this relationship with Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and their their companionship, their friendship, their deep friendship. I think the fact that he fought to get Val Kilmer in this movie and to be appropriately a part of this and not use his limitation as that, not use his throat cancer as a limitation and exploit it, but rather take it in stride and say, look, this is equally a meta moment for Tom and Val as it is for Maverick and Iceman. And of course the scene ends so perfectly because it has to end that way. It has to end with a joke with who's the best pilot. Let's not ruin a good moment here. And yeah, that it was a, it was a beautiful scene. I looked over at my wife and she was getting teared up and um, I probably will tomorrow because you know, even though I know it's coming, I'm just gonna be paying attention to more things like you have. So it's uh, it's beautiful, and I and it, could not ask for a better scene. If you yourself or if listeners, if you've not watched it from 2021 last year at this time, there's a documentary that came out called Val. It was on Amazon Prime at the time, streaming. It is all about Val Kilmer's career, and it covers in depth the throat cancer and where he's at now and how he's dealt with it. I cannot recommend it enough. Just one of the best kind of profile documentaries that I've ever watched and it will do nothing but just enhance your respect for him as an actor and and make you really just the scene will be even better for you honestly when you kind of learn about his journey through this cancer and how it's affected his career and and you get to kind of see it's not just Tom like everybody in Hollywood loves this man there's a reason right it's not just for show you carry yourself a certain way in order to have people respond that way to you. So I was, yeah, it was beautiful. So I think two things left. Well, let's do the, let's do action. So, okay. Action <laughs> and action. What'd you think? I, I don't, I don't even know how to lead into this. Wow. W T <laughs> F. Okay. Right. I was right. <laughs> amazed 
I could not pick up the jaw that was on the floor with how amazing everything was. I want to be able to do the mission in um the the game that you let me let me sneak from you. I, I want that <laughs> mission. I hope I, I'm wondering the I can't remember Ace's uh I can't remember. Ace Combat Seven. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Ace Combat Seven had some DLC content. I saw that the DLC content came through. I have the F A eighteen as well it. as F fourteen. Yes, sir. And and the uh, Dark thank Star. You. Thank you. Thank you and for that. Fifth, thank and you. a fifth generation fighter. Thank you for that. Thank you for all that. What I what I want is the downloadable content to include the mission that they fly because that is an amazing mission. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And I love it. I love we talked about this on the Iron Eagle episode, how you loved everything. Uh you loved the mission, but nothing else. And I loved everything but the mission and <laughs> that kind of thing. The mission was so outstanding. And all of the dogfighting and the flight sequences. I love I love the fifth gen fighters. I love the fact that we don't see I love aviators that you can't see their faces because they look so intimidating. And did you know that a plane just, could do that before this movie? Did you know that's no. called thrust vectoring? It's I when what? I dude, I, I legitimately let out a yelp and I <laughs> I was I said I said holy shit like out loud. I was like I mean like what in the what I mean it's just and it's the perfect like step up from I'll hit the brakes and it'll fly right by. Just yes. the perfect like next level of that. It looked like a pancake just flying through the air. Dude, I mean, what I, is yeah, that? I, I went and I looked it up. I watched some YouTube videos. It's a real thing and it's it's Oh insane. of course it is. Yeah. This is again practical effects. You're like, oh yeah, practical effects. They're awesome. They're awesome. No, this is insane. I almost I think in my head, I probably yeah, in my head, because I probably would have gotten kicked out of the theater, in my head I yelled, Shut up. Did that just happen? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I think <laughs> I almost want I wanna believe it's not true, but I wanna believe that both Tom Cruise and Teller were surprised when that happened. Like they'd seen they'd never seen that in their life, or that was the first time they got to experience it because their reactions was looked so completely genuine. But man, from from the like the the whole bit with the planes getting picked up on radar and immediately getting shot at by the Sams. I mean, I think what Top Gun Maverick does so well among the tons of things that we've already talked about is it calls out the amazing advancements in technology, the instantaneous AI that is used to oh you're on radar, boom, we're going to attack you. Like I believe that's real. I want to believe that's real because that's how far we've come technologically. It doesn't feel clunky. Again, you watch the first one and you're like, this is cool stuff, but it feels heavy. These aircraft feel like they're just clunkers and they're doing cool things. But then you see the fifth gen aircraft, you see the surface to air missiles, you see all this stuff and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be anywhere near these aircraft because they will stab me. They will kill me because they can't. I mean, they can maneuver so precisely. It's like you're doing like a, like a, a uh, hockey slide in the middle of the air. That's what was happening. I was like, are these guys on ice? Are they, what's, what's happening here? You, you, you're turning on a dime. That's not possible in these giant aircraft. Yeah, apparently it is. So yes. Wow. I'm excited. I want to see that. Again. That's what I want to see again. I'm like, let's, let's oh, get yeah. past all the drama, whatever. Let's just get to the mission. Cause I'm cool. I'm ready for that. Well, it, it's so well spaced out. You, you start with the dark star and that's really cool, but you know, not any fancy maneuvering, but neat. But then 
there's a good amount of different times that they go up, right? They, they go up the first time and the whole push-up thing comes up with the cocky kids trying to talk smack and, and him flying up between them. And he does that a couple times, that move. And that was just like, are you freaking kidding me? You get the Cobra move with him and Rooster heading straight to the freaking ground, which is like, I just, I'm, I'm literally holding my breath. Like, I mean, I know nobody's going to die, but like, I mean, you, you just, you're like, what is happening right now? These two yeah. jets are like literally going, he's like, Maverick's like, you got us here. Get us out. <laughs> that was just so intense. And, uh, and then, you know, you have the bird strike and obviously Phoenix going down and losing that jet. Then you have the Maverick flying the, the course, which is absolutely epic to prove that it can be done. And you get all of that leading up to that whole third act, which and I'm so glad it was as lengthy as it was and it went as hard as it did. The shot of everything about it, Patrick, is just, I mean, like, it's perfection. It, the Getting off the deck, right? Flying into formation, coming into the tack formation to a single line, watching the tomahawks flying over their heads, because that's how tomahawks work, folks, in case you don't know. Like, they're literally just, guided bombs and they're they just go across miles and miles and miles in the air like that and then they land where you told them to land there's a ton of them so many and and the look on the pilot's faces even when they look up at them like wow that it's a they're they're almost mesmerized right to an extent which is cool you know the them coming down the awac changing the picture from radar to to the the, it giving the picture of them like you said the way that it depicts the sam's turning and immediately right that one scene of the dog fighting when all you see i love how much they use the flares because that's a thing too like that's when they're saying dagger defense dagger defense and they're like popping flares i'm doing that in the game by the way all the time because some some of these missions dude it's like it's like this like there's eighteen thousand sams firing at you and i'm just like flare 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 (laughs) and now i'm screaming dagger defense when i'm playing the game but um but yeah, like it, I mean, it's all there, and, and you get that in addition to the dogfighting. You get the epic Maverick move of saving Rooster, popping up in between him to drop his flares, which is, I mean, it was super sick. I mean, you get, obviously, Mav dead to rights by this gunship, and Rooster shooting it down, him going to Rooster. Them, I mean, the way they worked it, to where it made it actually make sense to end up stealing the FA-18 <laughs> or the, the, sorry, the Tomcat. I, I'm sorry, but I, I lost my crap when they got in the Tomcat. I just, it, that's, and that's for fans, right? That's for, that's your fan service. That's right. your, this is what it is all about, but it's also realistic. It's not unheard of because that's what happens to the fighters. When we sell them <laughs> to like other nations, we sell our old stuff to them and they use that as their military assets. So that's very realistic that that would be a thing. And yeah. I love the way that Rooster treats it. And he's like, this old thing, he is completely just, just disgusting. Oh, he's iGen. He's iGen right <laughs> he's now. He's like, like, my iPhone could probably fly better than this. Yeah, and he's, he's probably like, right. What, you, what is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bucket of rust. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and you get the great callback to the, the opening flight scene in Top Gun with the MiGs where 
those two fifty and fighters come up to them and Mav's just like wave and smile. And he's like, Yep, yep. And Rooster's like, What about that one? What about that? What about that hand signal? You know what that hand signal? Mav's like, Nope, nope, I don't know what that one means either. Just <laughs> and and then the move, right? The move when when Rooster's like, it, it's such a great line too. Like everything about everything about that was just so perfect, man. When he says and I'm just like basically requoting the movie at this point now, but and going through the whole thing. But he says, You wouldn't you wouldn't uh or what would you do if I wasn't here? You know, he's like, he's like, you wouldn't run if I was here or eject if I was here. And Mav's like, but you are here. <laughs> and he's like, Don't think, Mav, just do. And without telling him what he's going to do, he just yeah. turns right, hard right, and strafes him with his guns and then freaking freaking draws the missile across and into the falling wreckage of the first plane. And I was like, are you freaking serious right now? Yeah, this is um, insane. Dude, it's, it's so, so good. And, and the game yeah. that, well, that you're talking about is they don't have a mission per se. I don't think related to this, but if you just play through the campaign, there are multiple ones the mission that I was stuck on before I bought the flight stick, because this this movie inspired me to get the game, and then I literally bought a flight stick so that I could fly like Maverick, which is awesome, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and the mission I was stuck on was flying into a valley and taking out SAM and radar targets at the bottom of a valley. So I'm literally going low speed, like coming around pillars and trying to target these things while SAMs from above are targeting me. And then I come out of this segment of this mission and i pop into the air and i get attacked by a bunch of drones and i have to dogfight my way out of it and it's just it and while the sams are still flying or shooting at me and it's like it's exactly like the mission it almost and it was just like fascinating how much that it was a replicate of that and so much fun so cool the game's awesome you're gonna love it just it's so much fun to play especially right now with this being yeah for sure but but yeah the the whole the whole action sequences were just so unreal i mean and obviously culminating in again a very unsubtle not called out no coffee no one says the words but he buzzes the tower makes sense because he actually has to go buy it to turn around right but he clearly buzzes the tower and yeah i was just so giddy with the way that ended I thought but yeah. watching that whole thing play out, I love the fact that the Tomcat is clearly not the superior or even competitive. Oh yeah, not kind of, even competitive. I thought yeah. like when he when he locks on to the uh, to that fir- the second first or second uh, fifth gen fighter, he the you know the the missile flies and then it does that crazy like pancake maneuver. I'm like oh, okay, clearly he's outgunned, and then he loses all of his guns at some point he's it just it makes us realize and reminds us that it's about the pilot and not about the plane so getting back and being able to not dogfight and be amazing but the fact is you got to get out of there and so that's what their their mission was i thought for a minute when <laughs> the takeoff sequence for the tomcat oh my gosh I don't want to believe that that's possible, but I guess it is. Again, if I believe that practical effects are practical effects, are they taking some creative liberty with what a plane can do? Maybe. But when the front landing gear broke off, I was like, oh my gosh, is this going to be a plot point? Are they not going to be able to land? Is this going to be like a like a, like a a Cougar and Merlin moment where they can't land and they have to figure something out? But I'm, I'm glad that the 
movie didn't make that a big deal. It was like, okay, well, what do we have to do? I've got a got no landing gear. I'm coming in hot or whatever he said. I was amazed and I'm still amazed at how carriers are able to stop planes going that fast. Again, I don't know how fast they're going. I don't know if they're going, you know, 150 miles an hour or 75 miles an hour. I don't know According how fast they're coming. According to the game coming. to land? According to the game, I can tell you because okay. I landed uh it would be like I you'd come up, you'd come in and I'd be approaching at about I'd say 400 and I think it's miles per hour not knots. Could be knots, but it I think it's miles per hour. And it would be like, you know, you need to slow down. And I would say I touched down well under 300, maybe around 300, 250, 300. And then it would quickly, you know, drop you down. Um, but yeah, you're you're coming in still. Most of your approach is four or 500 miles an hour at least. And That's it's, crazy. It is. And it's amazing that they can catch them with the, um, right. the catapult. With no, the no, cable? No, not the catapult. The, not the catapult, the, but the, the cable. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cable, the tow hook cable, but also the, I forget what it, the cradle um, that they have to throw up. That big for the net? Nose to catch the nose. Yeah. The, yeah. It's amazing that it works. I mean, because that's not, look, listen, a carrier, you may think it looks cool and long. It's not. I've been on them <laughs> multiple times. Like, it's not that much space, which is also what makes it so cool. Because if this was Doug Masters, Patrick, and he was in the Air Force, <laughs> Because all he's used to is runways, he would be hosed. But he's not. He's Maverick. He flies off carriers in short spaces, and so he can take off out of a bombed runway. Right. Yeah, and that's that's what kind of came to mind. I was like, okay, this is like a carrier takeoff. It's okay. He can do this. Mav, one of the parts that coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the things that I I was a little nitpicky on, but I understood. And was glad it didn't last very long. Was when they were on the ground. I thought, is this going to turn into Mission Impossible because they're now on the ground? We've been so used to them being in planes and knowing that at some point they're going to have to get home and they cannot have a rescue op and they won't have a rescue op because we're getting close to the end of the movie. So I was glad to know that they got on the ground, they looked, they saw the Tomcat, they got in it, and they're back in the air. I like that it didn't last very long because extending that would have felt really weird. And so I'm very forgiving at the fact that if they got to get there, I'm not going to say, well, you know, some people saw that they were moving around. No, people were running around all over the place and nobody's going to recognize that they're American aviators or that they're not part of the whatever. It's chaos. The runway's busted. So all that's good. It just felt a little weird at first. And I was like, okay, don't stay on the ground too long. In fact, Krisha pointed that out too. She's like, I'm glad they didn't stay on the ground very long. I was like, yeah, because this is not Mission Impossible. This is Top Gun. We need to get back in there. So it was great. Yeah. And I I love really the fan great. service in that regard. And I'm not I'm not one to want that a lot, to just kind of throw it right in my face. But again, appropriate. It was appropriate nostalgia. Because you're right. This is what we do. We give we sell our planes that we don't use anymore. And it gave Maverick one last run in the aircraft that made him famous, that made him who he was. Again, I know it's not the plane, it's the pilot. And yes, he's absolutely great in all aircraft, apparently. I like to see him maybe in a chopper, you know, to see how he handles that instead of being shot at by one. Well, he flew himself in a helicopter to the world premiere on a carrier. At, <laughs> at the, I don't know if you saw that, but he literally I didn't. flies himself in a helicopter and lands for the premiere of the movie. Good job, Tom. Way to be, way to be. Yeah, so sure yeah, I, I thought... Anything. I. Yeah, right. So glad they got home. Glad that 
you know, I guess the Tomcat will get dis- dismembered because <laughs> yep. it can't be used anymore. And uh, no. yeah, what a great, great end to the, uh, to the mission there. Totally agree. And I, I mean, I think that's most of everything. The music is amazing. I love the worked in score. I love the fact that I was reading Tom actually called Kenny Loggins to tell him and ask, or ask him or tell him that they wanted to use the songs in the movie, which is just beautiful. It's crazy to me. It's like the score was Lady Gaga and Lorne Balfe and Hans Zimmer. Like the co- collaboration in this score is wild. I do like the the new song is not as memorable to me. Hold my hand. It's good. But what I like about it is that the theme of that song is played intermittently throughout the film and it's very sweepingly emotional kind of core or score there. And it, and it happens a lot when Tom is with or when Maverick is with Penny. Uh, and I yeah. thought that was good. But yeah, just the way that they implemented the score was fantastic. I mean, just everything else was, of course. Is there any other nostalgia stuff you like? Did we miss anything? I really don't know I mean, if we, we could have. We, I don't think we did. We're sitting at 221 in terms of our <laughs> hours and minutes. So Oops. I, I will say this, that in general, the nostalgia, the callbacks, the two words that come to mind for me is just enough. It wasn't overbearing. It wasn't too little. There's a connection was there. And I think someone coming into this thing blind would probably enjoy it. But I do think there is value to watching the first one. In fact, as we were going into the theater, there was a family coming out and I believe they had just gotten done watching it because some of the kids were saying something and their mom goes, well, yeah, I mean, that was something that happened in the first movie. And so if you hadn't seen that, you wouldn't have gotten that. But I don't think it's a movie that needs to have the first one. Not like, you know, The Godfather versus The Godfather Part Two, But I do think there's a definite enhancement because of everything we've talked about. And so for us, I think the callbacks were appropriate but I do see the fan service being played. And again, it was just enough for me to feel like I wasn't being coddled, that it was very, it was perfect. It was really enough for me to be able to enjoy and not feel like I'm having to go back and say, I want some butts, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, definitely memorable lines throughout. I'm excited to revisit those here in the next, uh, next day. Uh, with the friends of ours that are excited about seeing it and and then sharing the conversation afterwards. So a lot of what we've talked about tonight will probably get regurgitated tomorrow. And I'm encouraging cool that, uh, that, that couple to listen to our episode. <laughs> so in case we miss something in the conversation, they can come back and go here. This is what we really thought. about. Well, the whole thing. if you're listening and you're that couple, I hope you loved the movie and I hope you yes. guys had a great conversation. You, did. you absolutely did. Prophesying afterwards. Did. Yeah. <laughs> And let it be known that I have mentioned my wife more on this episode than I have in, in probably the history of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> she really did love this. I mean, she so woke cool. up. I'm really happy. She woke up this morning saying, I want to see it again. And I, I those types of moments, those movies uh, just make me so appreciative that we can connect in that regard. So um, yeah, we're both excited to revisit that together. Cool. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. We're going to finish out our excitement of um, air, space, travel, fighting, whatever, with Ender's Game, uh, one of our favorite movies that we really haven't talked about since it came out, but we both love the book. And I'm excited to actually go back into that. I know, Aaron, you mentioned the connection to Ernest Cline's uh, Armada. And so I have started the book. I think I mentioned that to you. I've gotten through the first chapter. Will Wheaton is on point as always. So I'm hoping for a lot more walks in the near future so that I can get into that audiobook more. 
But for this week coming up, we'll be hitting back into Ender's Game. Aaron, thanks for a great involved conversation. And we will probably not go this long for Ender's Game, but who knows? <laughs> we probably won't <laughs> probably go this not. long combined for the next several episodes. <laughs> yeah, probably. So thanks for sticking with us. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.